0: This is Jocko podcast number 295 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. On November 14th, 2001, the troops of General Fahim Khan rolled into Kabul and liberated the city from five years of despotic rule by the Taliban. To win over the Pashtuns in the south and begin operations against the Taliban, the coalition planned to insert two ODAs near the city of Kandahar. Major Donald Baldock was a member of Special Operations Command and Control Element 52, which had tactical control of the two ODAs. Baldock explained the mission, quote, Basically from November 2001 until complete we were able to provide C2 and conduct unconventional warfare in order to advise and assist Hamid Karzai and Gul Sherzai in organizing anti-taliban forces Which was what they were called at the time and to conduct combat operations against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda forces end quote Bulldog further described the key tasks that the ODA had to accomplish with their Afghan partners. Quote, we were to secure Kandahar City, develop a plan to stabilize Kandahar City and operate from a secure base and then concentrically improve that security from Kandahar City, which was considered the cultural and religious center of gravity out to other provinces in the south and then on order, exfiltrate the operational area coalition leaders also understood that they could not simply leave the area once Kandahar was out of the Taliban grip, but had to set conditions for the next phase of the campaign. Major Bolduck asserted that the end state for the ODAs was the creation of a, quote, stable, safe, and secure Kandahar city ready to transition to more formalized humanitarian assistance and nation building operations. And that right there is a excerpt from a document that was written by the Combat Studies Institute Press out of the US Army School at at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and the document is called A Different Kind of War. The United States Army in Operation Enduring Freedom from October 2001 to September, 2005. And when you think about that, that segment that I opened up with, that's 14 November, that's just over two months after September 11th, 2001. 60 days. And in that minimal amount of time, America went from peace and relative tranquility To war and to chaos and men in the military who had been planning another standard day at work or preparing for another training exercise or maybe planning to take a billet where they could go get some more time with their family suddenly these men were at war The opening piece I read mentioned Major Don Baldock, And he was obviously one of those men that shipped off to Afghanistan to begin trying to sort that place out. And that first deployment in 2001 was just the beginning for him. Over the following years, he would deploy to Afghanistan over and over and over again, and also to Iraq and other parts of the world that were under threat. And that major would finish out his career as a brigadier general. And it's an honor to have him here tonight to share some of his experiences and lessons learned. General Bolduck, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. <clears throat> you know, as I was reading that and just saw that date of November 14th, 2001, and I was in the military at that time, but... To think of the radical transformation that was about to take place and how quickly we went from this sort of peacetime military to a wartime military and all that that entailed. It's, that's, a, that's a heavy situation. Let's do this. Let's rewind a little bit mm-hmm. and learn a little bit about you, where you came from, how you grew up and uh, sort of how you ended up in the situation that you're in right now. Sure. So, so we're so. Let's start at the beginning.
1: So the beginning. I was born in Laconia, New Hampshire. Uh, been a resident of the state of New Hampshire for 59 years, and I'm 59 years old. Uh, I uh, learned my work ethic on our family farm in Guilford, New Hampshire. We had a dairy farm. Uh, we had a uh, vegetable farm. Maple syrup. Uh, the farm has been in, in existence since 1779. Uh, our family is the second owner of that farm. My grandfather bought it in 18, my great-grandfather bought it in 1899, coming down from Canada. Um, and uh, my uh, my grandfather had 13 children and my dad was seven of the 13. Um, and uh, uh, what us Baldocks did was uh, we worked farm. That's how we learned, right? We, we planted gardens, chopped wood. Um, uh, you know, back in the day, we'd uh, in the in the deep snow. My brother and I, like, uh, we had our harnesses and we would pull the sleds and we would dump the the maple syrup into the uh, into the container. Now it's all done by um, by gravity through <laughs> through plastic pipes right into the uh, sap house. Before it was done by good old-fashioned grandchildren right <laughs> you know uh, and so um, I wouldn't trade that for anything it got me tough in the winter tough in the summer tough in the fall I built more stone walls than I needed to do so moving rocks from point A to point B was never a problem I went to Catholic school and got my butt kicked by, ner- uh, by nuns on a regular basis um, and so when I went to basic training in 1981 after high school uh, what are they going to do to me, wake me up early, <laughs> yell at me? I don't know how many times my dad told me I was about as useful as a snowball in hell, you know what I mean? But, he, you know, he loved me, right? He was just trying to prepare me for the world, you know? It's not going to be easy out there. You've got to use your head, right? What made you enlist in the Army? My grandfather on the Baltic side had a policy that all Baltic males will serve their country. He didn't care if it was the National Guard, Reserves, active duty, or what service it was, but you will serve, and if you don't serve, you're not welcome. And uh, he never served because when he got here, he was too old. Um, uh, um, He was too old for World War I, um, but he uh, nonetheless, I had uncles that served World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam, Every conflict the Baltics have been in since uh, since World War two right and we didn 't get here until eighteen ninety nine and so my grandfather had to establish uh, some uh, some children and some grandchildren <laughs> before he could uh, start populating the um, the u s military uh, but when i when I went into the um, I went into my uh, recruiter in the 11th grade because I knew I had to do it so I went in in 11th grade and at that time they had the uh, delayed entry program where if you joined early um, you got credit for that service plus you went in as a mosquito wing private you know instead of just a slick sleeve private right which was like you know five dollars more a month right and back then it was double your basic pay that's right back then it was 200 dollars a month so I was pretty happy right so it was good uh, and and, you know, before that, though, in high school, I joined the uh, police cadet program in um, Laconia, New Hampshire. And it's a funny story how that started, right? I, uh, <laughs> I was um, in 10th grade, and we were walking over from high school. Um, it was af- after school, but before we had to leave for a football game. And it was an away game, and I was walking over with a group of the guys over to the, to the little store to pick up some, some chow for the bus, right, and, and I, uh, there was this coke can set up perfectly right on the curb of the road, and I thought, man, I'm going to go kick that, so I started talking about, you know, uh, five seconds left in the game, blah, 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 you know, and I, I kicked that ball, I kicked that can, and it hit the side of a police cruiser parked at the light. <laughs> and so I know him now, Sergeant Bionaz, uh, jumps out of that car, and he is pissed off. And he's, everybody get on the ground. So we're all laying on the ground, and he's like, who did it? So I raise my hand. And I go, I did it, sir. and He puts me in the back of the cruiser, and... <clears throat> yelling at the other kids and the, you know my friends and they ran off and I'm sitting in the cruiser and he, he goes so what'd you do that for and I explained to him that, what I was doing and he said alright sounds like an accident to me uh, he goes have you ever heard of the police cadet program I go no sir he goes well I think you'd be a good kid for that program <laughs> right cause you had enough balls to own up to it you know and I said alright so I did it, and I got selected, and I, and I started out, and I really loved it. So in 1980, a year before I graduated from high school, I, I um, had the opportunity to go through the, the uh, part-time police academy program. And so I did it, and I ended up getting qualified as a police officer. So when I went into my senior year at 18 years old, I was a qualified police officer working for Laconia Police Department and i did that for a year before i went into um into the army and um uh went into the army from 81 to 84 and
0: um uh, were you, and were you active duty? I was active duty. Yeah. Okay. It's basically a, a little bit like a break for you cuz you're not out on the dairy farm. That's right. It, <laughs> it's a huge break.
1: Well, it's a huge break because it's not um you know, you can imagine being a police officer while you're in your uh, senior year of high school.
0: Mr. Popular?
1: That's right, Mr. Popular. <laughs> every every party that got busted up was my fault. You know, I, I, always, I obviously had inside information that I passed on to the police. And it doesn't work that way, right? I mean, we don't care about parties, but your neighbors do, particularly when it gets too loud, right? So they call. And I just couldn't get that point across. But nonetheless... Um, <laughs> You know, after serving as a police officer and, you know, I mean, you know, my my dad was a a taskmaster, right? I mean, he was a a strong, good man uh, who is no longer with us, but nonetheless um, served 35 years as a city councilman and mayor for our city uh, school board, uh, just a great pillar of the community in addition to being a— you know, a, a guy that would, uh, that would do anything for anybody. And so, anyways, I, I learned all that stuff, but working on the dairy farm, you know, haying. Haying's the worst thing you can do in the world, right? <laughs> I mean, I hated haying season. When July rolled around, I prayed for rain, because we, we didn't, you, couldn't, you can't hay in the rain. <laughs> <I> <laughs> but had, it didn't happen,
0: right? I had a guy who, who was a new guy came to work for me when I was at SEAL Team Seven and he was a hard working kid up, ready to move sandbags, fill sandbags, Mm -hmm. move steel around, (laughs) dump ammo, pick up ammo, whatever I need him to do. Finally, after a couple weeks, and I'm not too impressed, you have to be a really hard worker to impress me. And after a few weeks, I said to him, I said, hey man, you're, because he had kind of just shown up in my platoon, he didn't go through our workup or anything, he was a new guy, just showed up in Iraq, Mm -hmm. showed up in Iraq, and he's working his ass off. And I look at him one day and I said, hey, you're, you're a hard worker, where are you from? And he said, I grew up in a dairy farm in Minnesota. <laughs> and I said, well, I appreciate your hard work. He said, sir, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as it doesn't have anything to do with cows. <laughs> and he told me his schedule, and he was up at four o'clock in the morning every day to milk cows get get home in the afternoon after wrestling practice milk cows and it was i don't know what he had but 300 or 400 cows he had to milk Mm -hmm. so the dairy farm seems to breed some hard work yeah well you know
1: (laughs) after uh practice whether it was baseball or football or whatever it happened to be my dad said i'll see you at the farm and so i would jog from the high school uh up up moral street to the farm you know uh and uh and did whatever he asked me to do up on the farm, right? And so, when I got to basic training and met Sergeant Mules, my uh, my basic training um, drill instructor, um, <clears throat> oh, you want me to make my bed, you want me to do this, you want me to do that? Yeah, you, you, you know, I was up before he threw the trash can down the aisle, right? <laughs> uh, because that's just the way it was. And, um, <clears throat> and he, you know, he would say to me, Baldick, you don't sleep! I go, and I'd say, well, uh, drill sergeant i i do sleep but i don't require much right um and uh you know so yeah that kind of hard work did it and then the discipline that the nuns instilled in me i mean come on right it's just <laughs> sister lucille
0: right i mean she sounds scary <laughs> she is scary she was a
1: flaming redheaded ner- headed uh, nun that just scared the hell out of me and um and she got her pound of flesh out of me uh but
0: were you an athlete in high school? I was,
1: yeah. What sports did you yeah, play? Yeah, I played uh, football, baseball, and basketball. And I was told, uh, you're too small to play football, but by my sophomore year, I was, I was starting on the uh, varsity team. Too short to play basketball, but I was a starting guard on the basketball team. Uh, I was, uh, they told me I couldn't pitch, but I ended up being a pitcher. Because my arms were too short, and and I wasn't tall enough, and I couldn't get a good stretch off the mound. But, you know, so uh, I think the farmer in me, uh, uh, you know, don't tell me I can't do something kind of thing, right? um, Because I'm going to try and prove you wrong. (laughs) So anyways, you know.
0: When you enlisted in the Army, did you do it? did you plan on was it a career was it reserves or was it active
1: no it actually uh it was active duty okay but my plan was to um you know pursue law enforcement so when i was coming out of the army in 1984 i was a sergeant and i was going to rotc um, green to gold program uh, not to go on active duty but it was through the national guard and they were going to pay for my education and I was going to get my commission through ROTC. The beauty part about prior service is you don't have to do the first two years of ROTC mm-hmm. because you've got basic training in AIT under your belt. So you start at your junior and senior years, right? <clears throat> and I didn't, uh, I didn't anticipate making it a career at all. Um, I wanted to be, uh, be in law enforcement, but I got called down in my company commander's office and my first sergeant was there, first sergeant Kingston, and, and uh, Captain Jeffrey L. Ames uh, was there and he, I reported to him, position of attention, and he said, Sergeant Baldick, I know you're getting out, uh, but I want to talk to you about that because I think you should stay in, I think you should re-enlist and I, you just came down on drill sergeant orders and you should go be a drill sergeant. He goes, what are your plans? And, I s- and so I just explained to him what I explained to you, and he said, yeah, I, I just don't see you being successful as an officer. He said, you're enlisted material. You're, you're a sergeant major in the making, you know. He said, I think you should stay in and you should follow that track, because you're gonna have the most success with that. And again, this little light in the back of my head, did you he just tell me I can't do something, <laughs> right, kind of thing, and, uh, and my, you know, I took his advice and I said, thank you, sir, very much, but <clears throat> I followed a different path. Well, uh, 1st Sergeant Kingston calls me out into his office. He puts me in a front lean and rest position, and he says, You count loud to 50. And he gets down real close to my ear, and he goes, Hey, listen. He goes, You take, and you go to ROTC, and then when you get commissioned, you find wherever this captain is in the United States Army, and you take those bars and you put it somewhere the sun doesn't shine. <laughs> That's what he says to me. And I go, yes, first sergeant. As I'm, you know, 22 first sergeant, 23. And, and you know, he's so he's like, he's like, "Get up." So I get up and he dismisses me. And, I am a first lieutenant in special forces training at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And who's the command sergeant major of the 16th Military Police Brigade? Sergeant Command Sergeant Major Kingston. Hmm. So here I am, a first lieutenant in SF training, and I called his office, and I told him who I was, and I asked if I could come over and, and have a meeting with him. So they, they did that, and I went over and I met with him. And he was so happy to see me, right? He goes, have you found Captain Ames? And I go, no. And he goes, you know, he's a lieutenant colonel now. And I go, no, I didn't know it. I, I, didn't, I haven't tracked his career. But anyways, he... Uh, He goes, I remember that day, that was hilarious. And he goes, I'm glad you're doing well. You're in special forces training. He goes, that's really great, right? And and so we, you know, um, it's just, uh, I didn't plan on going back on active duty, but I did well in ROTC and I qualified for an active, you know, regular army commission. And I said, you know what? This is 1988 and it is not looking good for jobs out there, right? So I said, ah, I'll just go in the Army, and we'll see how that goes. And I really didn't anticipate staying too long as an officer, you know, fulfill my requirement, you know, and, you know, perhaps get out. But as time went on, and I went into Special Forces.
0: Were you you, uh, a—so what was your job as an officer? Were you an infantry officer?
1: I was—I got commissioned into the Chemical Corps. Hmm which was another thing, I was like, what the heck? You know, I graduated number one from Northeastern University Liberty Battalion. I was number one, and the, the explanation I got is, well, you know, the quality's gotta be spread out across the Army, and it's based on needs of the Army. So I was like, okay, sounds like a good so explanation So what was it, chemical officer? Chemical officer, nuclear, biological, and chemical officer. But you know what? When I was looking to get out after my requirement, wow. <laughs>
0: You had some good opportunities.
1: Big bucks, <laughs> great opportunities. I was like, "Wow!" the good Lord was smiling on me because, you know, I, and I went to ranger school and I did all those things that you're supposed to do. So when I showed up at the combat arms units, right, I had the, you know, I wasn't just a support guy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, okay, this guy, prior enlisted ranger school graduate, you know, airborne school, you know, the whole nine yards. Yep. And so it just gave you more credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an enlisted guy, I served in the Fourth ID in the 2nd Airborne. So I had that in my background, and, and so <clears throat> it was all good. But um, but you know, yeah, Chemical Corps. You get put on the battalion staff, and you have to do the, you know, you get you get all the, you know, nobody's really interested in doing nuclear, biological, and chemical training. <laughs> <you know. laughs> so you get you, know, you get all the. Um, you know the interesting uh, assignments and i did those with a smile on my face and the best of my ability and then you know i was the first chemical officer to make it through special forces selection and training
0: so did you at what point did you learn about
1: special forces well i learned about special forces in 1968 when i watched the green beret movie with my <laughs> grandfather and um And so I was like, oh, wow, John Wayne, the Green Berets, you know. So it was always something in the back of my mind. And then uh, I was in Korea on my first lieutenant assignment, and um, the Green Beret recruiters showed up. And I went, and I said, I'm going to do that, right. And so that's what I did.
0: Where were you when the first Gulf War happened?
1: Uh, I was in 10th Special Forces Group. Okay. Um, And – so we did that there and then we rotated over to provide comfort, mm-hmm. the humanitarian assistance thing up in northern Iraq which was great experience with the Kurds. Um, <clears throat> and um, yeah, so I mean God just kept opening up these little <laughs> doors for me to like, you know, scoot through and um, before I knew it, it was, um, you know, I was a major on my way to Commander General Staff College. and. Uh, halfway to retirement, you know, twenty years, and I had a few extra years because of enlisted time. So, I was like, you know, hey, if I make it to lieutenant colonel, I'm going to be doing pretty damn good. So, I was pretty happy about that.
0: So, the so you went through Special Forces in what year? Through through the selection?
1: Uh, I went through selection in 1992, February of 1992.
0: Was how was that? Was it challenging for you? Did you enjoy it? Was it what you expected it to be? Yeah, I expected a smoke show, and that's what I got,
1: <laughs> right? And I really liked the the Special Forces selection process because nobody said anything to you, right? All your instructions were written up on a board, and you had to be conscientious enough to check that board frequently because they would do things like change it, right, <laughs> and then try and catch you, right, not paying attention. Um, and it was athletic events, you know, um, that you had to do. It was like right up my alley, right? So it was like, uh, yeah, good quality smoke show. Nobody yelled at you. They sleep deprived you and they gave you really good, I I called it building Barney rubble machines, right? Because it was like, oh, here's a trailer with only one tire and here's some straps and here's some poles. And you know, you got to move it 10 kilometers, and you know, they would set up these tasks, and you had to build like so it was like on the farm, like our farm was like an OSHA nightmare. Um, you know, we really didn't believe <laughs> One giant in OSHA, safety yeah, hazard. it was a huge safety hazard, right? And so, you know, uh, you know, coming up with a fix for, for the tractor or for the, for the, uh, the uh, hay baler when it went down or something like that was, you know. Was always right there, right? And you know, my dad's like, "Hey, we don't have we don't have time, and we don't have the money to go pay for this machine. So let's you know use some nylons and some straps and and figure this out, right? And so that's what SF training was about. You know, it was like, hey, you know, here's a pe- bunch of pieces of equipment. Figure out how to get it ten kilometers, and good luck, right? And work as a team uh, and support each other. So you know that's what farming's all about. And not one person makes that farm run. It's a collective team. That's what my grandfather had 13 kids. That's why he has over, you know, 500 grandchildren, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to make it work. You bring everybody together and you just make it work. So um that's what I liked about, you know, special forces uh training. Uh and I liked the idea but not everybody could make it, right? That there was this huge attrition rate. Uh and so I thought that was cool, too, because uh, it, was this, it was this special thing, right, that not everybody can get through, and only, only a certain type of person can get through it. it. doesn't make you any better than anybody else. It just makes you different, right, and that's what America's about.
0: Was there anything that was hard for you or especially hard for you?
1: Yeah, anything that required height. <laughs> because i'm short at five foot seven so you know these things that required height and then keeping up with guys with long legs on the ruck march yeah. i would it was a ruck jog for me uh to keep up because these guys had just this incredibly long uh stride and it was like god bless america I gotta, <laughs> you know come on cut that stride in half you know but you know they they move at their pace and they can't they can't be slacking because, you know, then the instructor sees they're slacking. For me, nah, I'll pick up a job, right? So
0: that's the way we did it. And you're married when you were going through special forces training, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah I got married uh, as a second lieutenant. I met, I met my wife, Sharon, in, in uh, college. Um, we were both in the ROTC program together. Uh, she was studying nursing, and she, was, she joined the Army at 17 years old had to get her mom's permission she went into the medical field right and down to fort sam Houston did her training and uh she's a she's she's as hard as woodpecker lips and i always like I always like to say um you know source of pride for me is that uh you know I married a woman that wore combat boots <laughs> so that was always that was always a, a cool thing but yeah she she was great and um you know. And she, and she understood nurse, the Army and understood, understood what you we were going through. Yeah. And I always asked her, right? I said, hey, th- I want to do this, right? You know, uh, uh, can I get your support? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's not going to be easy for the family. Um, and that's why, you know, leading up to 2001, when we had 9-11, we were gone a lot because during the Clinton years where he downsized the conventional forces, a lot of the engagement and stuff fell to special ops, right? We had to go deploy on all kinds of different things out there. So we were gone a lot. And so when we were gone a lot after 2001, my wife just took it in stride, right? And so when she started hearing people say, well, you know, they're never home anymore, and she, she, would, she would be able to use her experience to explain, hey, you know, this is, this is what it's all about, right? And so she was very, very good inside the. Inside the family readiness groups and you know very very supportive particularly uh, during deployments and you know when we had casualties and uh, she she had that frame of reference, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, She was always there. We've been married for over 32 years now, and I have never she's never ever faltered even when I even you know even when I wasn't a very good version of myself because of post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury and and, you know, um, uh, pain management issues and, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, that negatively affected my personal and professional life, too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know.
0: When, when before we get into that, when you are talking about the 90s, so now you're, what, what special forces unit did you check into when you got done with special forces school?
1: Fifth special forces group, Fort Campbell, Kentucky.
0: <laughs> and then you were doing lots of J-sets, heading overseas, building these mm-hmm. relationships fill in some of the gaps that were left by the downsizing conventional forces Where, and what was your what was your did you do a platoon command did you do a team did you do a company command like what was your billets there
1: So I was a detachment commander uh, ODA 582 and third battalion fifth uh, group um, and, and were I,
0: you guys doing like regular deployments? Would you go on deployment? So yes. I, when I, in the 90s when I was in the SEAL teams, we would go on a six-month deployment. Maybe mm-hmm. we'd go to Asia. Maybe we'd go to Southwest Asia. Maybe we'd go on a ship. But you were doing a workup and you were going on a, a long deployment. Yeah. Were you guys on a schedule like that? Exactly
1: like that. Exactly like that. But with fifth group, I went to one of two places. It was either Eastern Africa, normally Kenya. Or it was in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, and we had, um, you know, Kuwait, UAE, Oman, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Jordan, Mm -hmm.
0: you know, those places. Yeah, we must have crossed paths at some point along the we 90s, we had to we along had along to. the dry yeah, exactly. years. I did a bunch of shipboard deployments in the nineties, yeah. and and one where I wasn't on board a ship. But yeah, we were constantly pulling into all those places and doing whatever kind of exercises. Um, just always, always over there. One of the uh, one of the interesting deployments that we
1: went on that I thought was was really really good to work on your trade craft was. Um, JTF Bravo the drug interdiction missions that we did on the southern border Mm. and we would (coughs) we would deploy for 120 days to the southern border and We worked from the Texas border to the New Mexico border Arizona and California and we culminated in California in the Cleveland National Forest searching for marijuana fields (laughs) and and getting scared to death by booby traps right because they they were everywhere Uh, and and we would track somebody and then we'd find out they're actually tracking us you know so it was like holy crap right in america you know what i mean uh and so but we would get into our spider holes and we would you know we would you know i mean we would practice um, uh, i remember giving my battalion commander a briefing and i would say hey uh, we're gonna we're gonna be in these holes The guys are gonna be in the holes for uh, seventy two hours and then we're gonna under the cover of darkness rotate them out get them back to the um, to our you know mission support site get a debrief and then we're gonna send them back to Phoenix to recover in a hotel right clean all their kit mm-hmm. and we we had this whole process and we're gonna be we we made our spider holes and all our Camouflage out of uh, PVC pipes and all that mm-hmm. stuff, right? And we'd break it all down. You put it in your pack, and then you'd set it all up, and you'd dig your, your hole, and that's what you're going to be in, right? And we we even came up with, you know, different exercises in the spi- – because they couldn't get out of the spider holes, right? And so he goes, so what are you going to do with the with the uh, uh, human waste? I go, well, we're going to carry it out with us. And he goes, oh, you're going to carry it out with you? And I said, yeah, we're going to carry it out with us, sir. And he goes, pfft. I'd like to see that. So I delivered to him <laughs> a hefty bag full of extra mint and pee. And I put it right on his desk and I said, there it is, sir. <laughs> and I'll never forget the look on his face. <laughs> the sergeant major, command sergeant major, pulled me aside and he said, that was either the most brilliant thing that you ever did as a detachment commander or
0: the dumbest thing
1: time will tell (laughs) yeah
0: that's that's good as soon as you said i'd like to see that i said oh he didn't oh yes he did he did see it yeah (laughs) so uh yeah those were interesting i never did those missions but i remember platoons getting sent out to do them and it's basically doing reconnaissance of drug Transport routes coming across the border the, all across yeah. the southern border. We and would weigh,
1: we would uh, radio it to the police and they would do the interdiction mm-hmm. uh, And it was just uh, it was just a it was just a great mission because we knew we were doing something for our country And then we knew we were also uh, training the hell out of ourselves yep. with with these these you know special reconnaissance techniques that um, Hey If they see you they compromise you you're done so, I mean, it was, it was good. It was real good.
0: So where were you when
1: September 11th happened? Oh, I was the operations officer for 3rd Battalion, or 2nd Battalion, 5th Special Forces Group. Um, and we were getting ready to go to Jordan for what was the largest SOC sent, you know, Special Operations Command sent com, um, uh, joint Chiefs of Staff missions they basically took about five Joint Chiefs of Staff missions and combined them all. We were going to be headquartered in Jordan and it include uh, egypt Oman UAE Kuwait um, and it was all over that geographical area we 're going to be doing all kinds of decentralized missions and stuff in, in, in these countries and <clears throat> airborne operations and we had a we had a ranger company with us and it was it was awesome, right? We put this all together. First time they were ever going to do something like that. And I really liked it because it was a regional approach to solving problems, right, instead of a country by country focus. Mm-hmm. So it was really great. And I'm a big big believer in this, you know, regional thing. I think it works out better when people get together and, and try and help each other solve each other's problems as opposed to just focusing on one country at a time. But anyways, I don't want to digress. Uh, so we were getting ready to go over for that mission. I'm sitting in my office the day before we're getting ready to deploy, a 9-11 hits, right? And I go down the hallway to my boss's office, and I put on the television, and I go, sir, check this out. By the time I turn it on, the second plane hit, hit you know, and I said, sir, I think we're under attack. And I said, it looks like they're going to hit every single one of our national elements of power. And, you know, then the Pentagon gets hit. You know, and then the plane goes down in Pennsylvania, uh, obviously headed probably towards the Capitol or wherever that was heading. So they, you know, they, they hit the economic. Uh, they just hit the military. They're on their way to the political. You know, I mean, holy crap. The president of the United States canceled every single exercise except for the Jordan exercise because – it was so important to the King of Jordan to have this thing, to have this exercise because it was, he was the hub country, mm-hmm. right? And so we deployed and we did it. And uh, it was shortened from 45 days to 30 days. And that's, you know, we went directly from Jordan to Uzbekistan for mission planning and then, uh, and then
0: into uh, Tarrant into County, Afghanistan.
1: So so
0: you complete this training operation in Jordan. Yeah. Which must have been strange doing this freaking training operation when the, you know that the world is like a ticking time bomb. Right. It was. It was. We're watching
1: the news all the time and you know we're I'm we're, um, I'm actually getting messages from higher headquarters get ready you're going to go you're going to leave. So we we got the log guys and ops guys and everybody planning to move us from Jordan to Uzbekistan but at the same time We have 560,000 moving parts (laughs) for this five-country operation, and people doing airborne operations, live fires, you know, uh, CQB, uh, you know. I mean, just all kinds of high adventure training, right? Uh, And, you know, we're doing uh, uh, joint and combined airborne operations. So you got – picture this. You got Americans, Jordanians, and Egyptians – on the same plane getting ready to jump out yee right because you know as far as i'm concerned that's a you know i mean we trained them but they're not necessarily following our training you know and the way some of them exited the aircraft it was like holy crap are you kidding me so it was like uh, you know, I know a lot of the sergeants are looking at me, going, "You're killing me, sir." You know, I'm like, "Okay." I hope yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, we're not. That's not the intent, right? But uh, I'm like, "Hey, we got to do this, right?" I mean, that's, that's what it is, and, um, and they would they would make sure it was great, and it went off without a hitch. But
0: so then from <clears throat> there, you go to Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan, and and now. Are you guys getting? You guys got the tasking. Okay, you're going to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Go to As- go to Uzbekistan mm-hmm. to start planning.
1: Right, because how, how many guys? Uh, it was it was. Let me see, uh, fifteen of us. Yeah. And and Colonel Fox had to pick them, so he picked them. And fifteen of us went off, and then he turned turned over the battalion to the XO, and the XO stayed in place and, uh, in Jordan, and then slow but surely he would rotate the teams into Uzbekistan as space opened up. Mm
0: -hmm. So (coughs) when you get to Uzbekistan, I mean, what's the damn, uh, what's the atmosphere with the team? How much do you guys know about Afghanistan prior to this? Nothing. Nothing.
1: Absolutely (laughs) nothing.
0: Did you you learn a language as a special forces
1: officer? I did. I learned Egyptian Arabic. Okay. Now, I passed the language test. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh.
0: But with we're the not lowest you score, Egyptian quiz show or anything. Yeah,
1: with the lowest score of um, that you could get on the defense language aptitude battery test, apparently, God didn't give me the ability to learn foreign languages, and I did. I struggled through what Spanish in high school and college, but I struggled through it. I got through it, anyways. But nonetheless. Um, so the lowest score qualifies me for a romantic language <laughs> like French and Spanish and Italian. And what do they send me to? Fifth Special Forces Group, where the language is Egyptian Arabic, Category Four language. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you want me to fail? Is that it? Uh, but you know, like anything else, test scores, you know, they mean something, but they don't test. Um, they don't test your will to do your best, right? So. I uh I ended up graduating with a two plus two plus and, and got language pay at seventy five dollars a month. <laughs> Woohoo. Uh and um and I was just, you know, I called two plus two plus just being dangerous enough to uh, you know, use a foreign language. You know, it's it's like it's like being a first level black belt in martial arts, right? You're just dangerous enough to get yourself hurt. <laughs> but it looks cool, right? Uh but nonetheless it is what it is and I um I uh yeah I, I I did that but Egyptian Arabic does you absolutely no good in Afghanistan with Pashto and Urdu and you know Tajik and Uzbek and you know
0: <laughs> so you're in Uzbekistan you're coming up with a plan and and who's giving you direction at this point what are you guys getting for a mission tasking are you getting clear directives or is it more hey, go, go start to put something together?
1: So to the credit of our seniors, everything was moving so fast, and everything was coming out of the Pentagon and the National Command Authority so quickly, so rapidly uh, that, you know, we weren't getting anything, right? And so um, basically we had two teams and then a command and control element um, that had to be led by a lieutenant colonel, and that came directly from the secretary of defense. So my, so it's not even the standard way that we would deploy mm-hmm. into a theater of operations. So you got two teams with a battalion commander and a very small staff that were C-2ing. Now, 3rd battalion had the north, 2nd battalion had the um, south, and 1st battalion had, you know, the... Um, the Kabul-Bagram area. Um, and <clears throat> so when we got there, it was like, all right, you got the south. You got to go link up with Hamid Karzai. You got these two teams. One's going to come from the south. One's going to come from the north. You can't figure it out. So we did. And I was happy to figure it out because it was good. How did you guys get in? So we went f- uh, MH1, uh, excuse me, mc uh to Jacobabad, Pakistan, and this, this is really, it, it's really funny because we were told, okay, you're going to get there and you're going to go find the Special Ops Air Force unit. And they're the ones that are going to fly you in to Tarenkau, um, Afghanistan, where you'll link up with a group of Afghans and then they'll take you to Hamid Karzai.
0: So, right. that, so that was the plan.
1: That was the plan. That was the plan. <laughs> And where did I find the uh, Air Force guys? In the mess hall. Because <laughs> <laughs> I looked all around Bad Farm, right? And my boss is like, I go, sir, let's go to the mess hall.
0: <laughs> Good call.
1: And so there they were. They were in the mess hall. And so, <clears throat> uh, you know. Uh, and what cr- they
0: bring you up in? Like Pavlos or something?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly at MH-53s. We phew, went right in. We took fire going in. Uh, one of them was hit. They still brought us in. We did a what I like to call a, controlled crash landing I mean it was a hard landing we all fell all over the place inside the damn thing we jump out <clears throat> the one advantage we had was nice night vision goggles we didn't know where they were or who they were but I had worked on I had worked on one Pashtun sentence please take us to Hamid Karzai mm-hmm. I worked on that over and over and over again and we Land, we hit the ground, dust everywhere, takes a few minutes for the dust to settle. We get into a V formation, and the plan that we had was, I go, Colonel Fox, I go, sir, uh, we'll move forward. Once we see him, we'll set in security. I'll walk forward with my rehearsed sentence, and, you know, we'll go from there. You guys point your weapons. I'm not going to point my weapon at them, but I'm going to have it at the ready just in case I need it. And I can see them. They're all, all these, there's about 10 Afghans there, and they're all pointing their weapons at a, at me. And I'm walking up, and I look at them, and I got these AK-47s right in my face, and all I could come out with was Harmut Karzai. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I could say. That well-rehearsed sentence, gone, gone. And uh, they... Um, you know, gave me the, you know, good, good to go. And, you know, I called up the guys, we came up, they put us in trucks and 20 minutes later we were meeting Hamid Karzai in a mud hut. And then we started doing
0: mud hut diplomacy. So what's mud hut diplomacy look like?
1: It looks like a bunch of Afghans sitting on the ground with us in front of a map. Uh, and, uh, we're telling them, you know, what we're seeing, uh, from our aircraft in the sky, and uh, are they bad guys, are they good guys? And then we're coming up with intermediate places on the ground to go to, and our first convoy that we did this uh, was a disaster. Little did we know that, um, that uh, they would all huddle around Karzai's vehicle because they didn't want anything to happen to him. And we had Karzai in the wrong spot. So we had motorcycles, and Toyota Corollas, and pickup trucks. We lost complete control of this convoy, and then we stopped to pray. (laughs) Right in the middle of the operation, right? Is this really a safe place to stop and pray? But it didn't matter. It's time to pray. We're going to pray, so we did that. So what we did was we figured out on the next one that we would put our guys up front for security. And we'd put Karzai back there, and nobody would pass Karzai's vehicle. Mm. So we maintained control. <laughs> now, if you turned around and looked at that gaggle back there, it was Mad like— Max. Oh, yeah, Mad Max. Uh, yeah, really, that's a great way to, uh, to explain it. And uh, But it worked, and so that's what we did. Uh, and as we moved forward, we got more and more village elders and tribal elders into the meetings, and then, of course— You know, people were talking about security concern. You know, what if someone comes in and just opens up and sprays the place? And I said, well, it's it's a chance we have to take. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just part of the the operational environment.
0: Yeah, you can't mitigate all risk. You can't. You do your best, but there's going to be some risks that you're going to have to take to achieve your mission.
1: And they weren't in the mood for us to disarm them. They weren't in the mood for us to search them. They weren't in the mood for any of that, right? We had to prove ourselves to them. And then they had to get comfortable with us. And we just had to trust, you know, Karzai. Uh, and trust me, the CIA guys that were there with Karzai were just as nervous as we were and just as concerned as we were because the last thing we wanted was, was Karzai to, uh, to get hurt because he's on the phone with um, all of the news outlets, right? In the middle of a briefing, we'd get a call, hey, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, whatever his name is, Dan Rather or whomever wanted to talk to him, right? And so he would take an interview right there. And then you had the bond committee um, that was meeting to figure out, you know, the government and who's going to be the interim prime minister. And, of course, Karzai's at the top of the list. They want to talk to him. So in the middle of that, they call up and they want to talk to him about stuff. And, you know, he just, and just sit there and listen to it. He was really good was really good in those days mm-hmm. he did a really really good job um, and I had a lot of hope right uh, but you know things get politicized and things happen and you know the longer things you know go on uh, he, he just he just you know eh. I really thought he did a great job um, particularly at the beginning there and you know the way he managed risk and the way he made decisions and the way he handled and, and the respect that he got. Um, he was the right guy at the time, mm-hmm. right? And um, <clears throat> and so uh, it, was, it was just uh, very, very interesting to see that. And of course, in subsequent deployments, I had a personal relationship with Karzai. So I could leverage that mm-hmm. uh, pretty easily uh, as a result of that very first rotation to explain something that had looked like in Kabul had gone wrong. But there was a lot of things in between where it happened and what was being told and what was being put out by the Taliban that weren't true. Mm-hmm. And I was able to get communications to him to be able to say, hey, um, that's not the way it went down, sir. Please, please understand that my heart's in the, in the right
0: place. And, and he would. Now, now speaking of things going wrong, um, weren't you involved in a um, in a, a fratricide incident where a bomb was dropped oh, on your true. on your location? Mm-hmm. Can oh, you debrief boy. us on that one?
1: Yeah, I I blame myself for that. What a day! Um, so we were at um Kot, twenty kilometers north of Kandahar, which was our our operational objective. We had to take Kandahar from the Taliban, the religious center of gravity. It was more important to take Kandahar than it really was to own Kabul or Herat or MES, you know, Major Sharif, um, because of the significance of it. And we had one presidential mission, and that was to determine whether the cloak of Muhammad in the mosque in Kandahar was still there because it was a huge concern. Uh, in the uh, in the Muslim community, all you know, all the way back to Mecca, right, with uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, this was a big deal, <coughs> and so uh, you know, uh, we we were doing combat operations for three days north of here. I mean, we had to go through a pass, and this pass at high ground it was a bridge. It was a it was a orchard. In front, and it was very well defended by the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and they weren't giving this ground up very easily. And we were doing um, combat operations, leading patrols, trying to disrupt them. We were, we were um, engaging them with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, F-15s and so on, and so forth. And um, it was going pretty, you know, it was going real well, and we were getting people that were switching sides you know afghans that would come and switch sides and they were giving us great intel and
0: stuff which is always shocking for americans to hear about people switching sides Mm -hmm. and it's very common especially in in the arab culture and i know that there's a i want to say this is an osama bin laden quote that you know the the people are going to bet on the winning horse. So basically, if you're strong and you're winning, people mm-hmm. are like, "Okay, that's who we're putting our money on." And so this is what you were seeing on the ground was as the coalition grew and as Karzai got more people, people are looking around going, "He's got more people," and they it's, it's almost like a mob mentality of joining joining that team.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and it, you know, required flexibility and adaptability on our part. And I know I know Colonel Fox was just never real comfortable <laughs> with it. All right, Don, where did all these people come from? And I said, well, sir, they came They came from overnight. Uh, and uh, they came from over there. And he goes, these guys were fighting us? And I go, oh, yeah, they were fighting us. And now they're with us. And we got the, um, we you know, they're all vouched for because, you know, oh, this is my cousin, this is my brother, this is my, you know. And so, hey, all right. And, you know, we got the sergeant major telling us, you know, it's okay. And then we got, you know, Elvis going, thank you very much, thank you very much, you know. So he, you know. And he goes, and we're going to arm him, and give him bullets and everything. And I said, well, yes, sir, we are. Uh, and uh, and he goes, oh Jesus! So he was never really quite comfortable with it. And he goes, he goes, you you you're good with this? And I said, hey, sir, I don't know if we have a choice, number one, but yeah, I'm good with it. You know, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, and I can see the same thing happening there. You know. Um, people sitting on the fence you know his, historically it, we've seen that you know where the passive people start joining the people that are winning and you know before that they're passive now they're active and you know vice versa so yeah I think I think we'll be okay right and uh, <laughs> it's all right I'm coming for you though if you're wrong and I said all right I'll, I'll, that's fair that's fair so anyways we uh we're doing this, and it's about 8.30 in the morning, and we get some good intel, and, you know, we get with Karzai, and we get a good decision from him, and we start, um, we start our operations up. Well, we had a very, very good process for uh, clearing our fires. We had a great STS uh, guy on the ground, and we had absolutely no errors, and we, <coughs> we needed to build up our force structure going into af- going into Kandahar. So, we took this point, we took this point in time to bring in some additional uh, augmentees, right? And <coughs> it was about 24 hours before this had happened. So, what we did was we um, we did a good transition with everybody. We had a Tac P come in and he did good transition with the STS and learned all the SOPs and everything like that and our STS guy and the TACP had uh, changed over
0: so just so everyone knows these these are the guys that call for fire from the air that's who we're talking about the TACP and the STS these are individuals that are trained that's what they do Mm -hmm. it's I mean, obviously, it's a really hard job. One mistake can be deadly, and that's what they're focused on, and it's great to have those guys because that's what they do for a living. Right. And so you had a transition taking place where you're going from one guy that had been with you, now you're, your force is growing, you got some extra guys that are going to be able to help out, but they're just showing up, mm-hmm. so they're not quite up to, up to speed yet.
1: That's correct. That's correct. And um, And so – they did their transition. We had got <clears throat> mail in for the first time. So guys were, you know, guys that weren't directly involved in doing anything were opening up their mail, and, you know. Um, <clears throat> I had done a walk around our our uh, defensive area, which was an old Soviet um, uh, mortar pit, right, up in the high ground. And I had walked around, and I had gone down the hill... <laughs> Just got to the bottom of the hill, um, and this big explosion, right, out of nowhere. And um, I don't know how much time had passed, to be honest with you, but I picked myself up off the ground. I had pieces of body parts, stuff all over me, blood all over me. I'm doing a quick assessment of myself. I got a real bad injury with my leg, um and um <clears throat> you know dazed looking around, and it is utter mayhem. we got afghans down, we got Americans down, we got rounds cooking off, we got r p g s cooking off, it's going all over the place um I start walking around, I start grabbing our guys. <coughs> we go down to where Karzai was and we made sure he was okay and he was with his uh, CIA guys and they had secured him. Um, and the guys that were with him, securing him, I asked them if they would go out and recon a safe place to bring in helicopters because I knew we were going to have to cassevack here. Um, and out 200 meters we had casualties, right? Um, it was It was a mess. All 20 of the U.S. guys on the ground were injured some way or another, some more than others, Um, and (coughs) we had um, I designated a uh, casualty control point, and I got with my comms guys, and we had to find some, uh, we had to kind of like take comms equipment from, you know, cannibalize it from Mm -hmm. other stuff to make reestablished reestablish com- communications with higher headquarters. I found Colonel Fox and he was, he was dazed and confused uh, just to the point where he was just not coherent about what was going on, so made sure that he was <coughs> taken care of um, and went up on the hill and we started pulling bodies off, right, with all these rounds cooking off and everything like getting getting guys off the top of the hill, getting them down. And we knew we had uh, to get um, complete accountability of everybody. And we did that and I was missing one, right? And went back up on the hill to where his position was and that was ground zero of the impact of the 2,000-pound bomb from a B-52 up 35,000 feet. I searched everywhere, and I found his hat. And I took his hat and I started picking up bits and pieces, and I put it inside the hat, and I put the hat inside a bag, and I marked it. Um, And that's how he was identified. But there was nothing to send home, absolutely nothing to send home. And another one of our guys that was killed was completely torn in half. I found him under a vehicle. His chest was still heaving. His legs were over here. His chest, his body was separated from it. Um, And I start doing CPR on him. And someone finally grabs me on the shoulder and goes, Sir, no, that's not going to work. He's torn in half. So anyways, we get him in the in a body bag and we get him off there and then we had one guy that was not going to make it but was um, still alive and we kept him alive and we got him evac when the when we had coordinated the evac we got a B team special forces company and a and an ODA to come in to backfill um, that came in from higher headquarters we got all the guys out uh, and and <clears throat> and then we started doing the, um, the after action and regrouping, because we still ha- this was five December. we still had to go and take Kandahar. Mm-hmm. So me, um, my assistant S3, the battalion commander and a combo guy, despite our injuries, we stayed on the ground in order to be able to coordinate the push to Kandahar so we did that we regrouped we got as many afghans out as we possibly could that were injured Um, that wasn't something that higher wanted to do but we talked them into doing it because it was the right thing to do Mm -hmm. so we got our afghan partners evac'd out Uh, we helped with the casualties for them as well in the village and everybody came out and 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 helped from the different areas around the village Um, and uh, we just said, "Screw it! We're gonna, we're gonna hit that. Um, we're gonna hit that bridge. We're gonna hit that uh, pass, and we're gonna knock them out of there." And we went through. Nobody was there. <laughs> right? This was 8 December, and we went right into Kandahar, and we took Kandahar. And the after action on that, though. Uh, and I blame myself to this day. The transition between the STS and the TAC-P was really good, but the TAC-P had to change batteries, and and those old soft lamps that we used to target designate, when you do that, the grid resets to your position, so before you send anything or confirm anything with the aircraft, you've got to make sure that, that you have your grid system squared away, and that was the mistake that was made. And <clears throat> as I go over this in my mind over and over and over again, even to this day, I think to myself, I should have been there to make sure that th- that I should have got an in-person briefing from the TAC-P that he knew all those procedures. I should have got that. And I didn't get that. And because I didn't get it, because of w- we were in combat, and because of all the things that you talked about earlier, um, you know, a mistake was made. And I, I was in charge of those operations on behalf of Colonel Fox. That was my job. And I didn't do my job, in my opinion, to the best of my ability. And we had that event occur. Uh, and, you know. Well, I learned a big lesson, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people learned a big lesson. But at the end of the day, um, <clears throat> it, um, you know, there's a, and I think you talk about it, you know, in your in your book there, Extreme Ownership, The Fog of War, mm. right? And Clausewitz and his explanation of the fog of war, and, I mean, it's all there, right? And you do what you can do. In some cases, you can only do so much. There's a lot of things going on, but in retrospect, it becomes clearer. And as you say, you've got to take extreme ownership, right? Not only on those things that go well, but most importantly, on those things that don't go well.
0: At what point did you realize it was a friendly bomb? Well, it wasn't until
1: um, I was talking to the TACP who was seriously injured, and he was apologizing. Yeah. And he said, I, sir, I made a mistake. I don't think that I, I cleared that grid like I was supposed to do. And I said, hey, listen, mistakes happen. These things happen. Mm-hmm. Please, you need you need to focus on keeping yourself. I mean, he was seriously injured. You need to focus on keeping yourself alive, so you can get home to your family. These things happen. Don't blame yourself. Now I know to this day because I've spoken to him quite a bit. You know the burden that he carries. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, at the end of the day, um, you know, fog of war, mistakes happen. It's a leadership responsibility. Uh, but it wasn't until then that i realized oh crap we got a we got a friendly fire incident here uh, and so when the investigation team came down to investigate we were already in Kandahar mm-hmm. we were already set up but we had already written our statements and you know i had a pretty good packet form knowing you know <laughs> anticipating what was going on and i think you talk about that in your book as well you know when when the friendly fire incident said okay let's we know a whole bunch of shit's going to come raining down on us, so let's get ahead of the power curve and let's make sure that we find out what went on and we tell the truth and we get the accurate assessment of what went on. And when we came down, and, and it was uh, Brigadier General Burford. Uh, he was the um, deputy commander for U.S. Special Operations Command. Uh, he's the one that came down and led the investigation and sat down with his team We said, this is what we got. We got him out to the spot so we could see it, um, and you know we gave him we gave him a you know a good briefing on on that and what we were doing and how we were doing it, and we had taken that soft lamb and we had isolated it. Um, it had been damaged, uh, but nonetheless wasn't being used anymore, and so we had everything for him in, in, a, in a nice right. package. And and I go, hey, listen, this is a combat environment. You know, we don't want him we don't want to have them come down here and have to expose themselves to danger here while they're doing their investigation but at the same time we want to make sure they get to where they need to go to do a thorough investigation and and the most important thing is lessons learned so this never ever happens again right and i tell you what nine more rotations never happened to me again never happened in the unit that i served in again Mm -hmm. because we made sure that that, you know, those kind of lessons were applied and over and over and over again, right? Yeah. So.
0: When I took over the training for the West Coast SEAL teams, like the tactical pre-deployment training, I would put those guys in positions all the time, and they would, every single group, every single platoon, every single troop, every single task unit, they'd get a blue-on-blue. Blue. Mm-hmm. And I'd sit down and say, hey, I want this to happen here, so you realize how it happened, so it doesn't happen overseas like it did to me. Mm-hmm. So that's the best thing you can do is take those lessons learned and, and spread the word mm-hmm. so it doesn't happen
1: again. And I, I can tell you that there's still there's still guys on that ODA. There's there's all three of the guys that we lost still blame us, still blame the chain of command for that. Right? And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I take that responsibility fully. I accept it and um I understand where they're coming from and uh, that's just that's uh, hopefully it has made me a better leader right Uh, as a result Uh, I mean what else am I going to do right except acknowledge it and um, you know move forward because my responsibilities uh, in leading didn't end as a result of that
0: yeah yeah and I mean even to those those guys that were lost, and God rest their souls, but at least the lessons that were learned from that, horrible as they may be, at least there's, you know, as you said, no operation that you oversaw after that ever had another incident. So their sacrifice saved lives, and I I know that's um, horrible in one way, but it's the truth. It's also the truth. It's also the
1: truth, and, um, yeah, I never had another Blue-on-blue incident uh, in the – as a battalion commander, as a siege soda sort of commander, and as a general officer-level commander in Afghanistan in combat. Never, ever had another one. Uh, and, um, you know, we attribute that to, of course, the experience of the guys as we go through. Uh, but most importantly, um, you know, leadership and learning, they're indispensable, right? Uh, and so you gotta you got to move forward, and that's what we did. So.
0: so you guys roll into Kandahar, and it's pretty much no factor? It was like, what was the resistance level rolling into Kandahar? The resistance level was minimal. We got ambushed going in, uh,
1: and, you know, we took care of that, uh, and we kept going. We get to uh, the Mullah Omar's compound, and it is— There are vehicles everywhere covered with mud because that's what they did to try and hide from our Hmm. aerial observations. Right? They covered their vehicles with mud. They saw Predator. Right. So we (laughs) we we said, and that was a way for us to identify if they were if they were bad guys or good guys because the bad guys were covering their cars with mud. (laughs) But here it is again. I looked, at Gen- I looked at Colonel Fox and I said, hey, sir, look, a parking lot full of bad guys. <laughs> and now they're on our side, right? And he goes, I don't get this. This is unbelievable. Uh, and then we went to the jail and we brought John Muhammad. Now, John Muhammad was a very, very close friend of Karzai, and he had been imprisoned by the Taliban and tortured for a very, very long time. And he became the governor of Urzgan. And he got up there, and he met with Karzai. And, and this is a guy that I developed very good friendship with over the years. Um, no matter what job I had going back into Afghanistan, in his mind, I was the commander of all special forces, <laughs> right? <laughs> I just was not. And I would tell him, I'd go, hey, listen, I'm just a battalion commander here. I just got these guys. He goes, oh, no, 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 you are the commander of all special forces. And he would tell people that, and it would get in the news, right? <laughs> and and I'd get a phone call, and i go, I didn't tell him that, right? And so, he yeah, probably knew he was yeah, getting yeah. You in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, ah, commander of all special forces. Well, he was <clears throat> he was a wild man, always had been a wild man. And if there's one guy that you wanted in, because Orzgan Province was, you know, I mean, it was full of Taliban, it was full of al-Qaeda, and we needed a guy like that to go up there and, you know, uh, clean house. But the way he was cleaning house and the way that, You know, it was acceptable in the international community was two different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we had to keep a very close eye on that. But nonetheless, um, he gets there and he goes, all right, I'm going to need some furniture. So he starts going in the rooms and he starts going, I want that, I want that, I want that. And he goes into Mullah Omar's office. And I wasn't with him, but one of the guys was in there, and he comes running over to me, and he goes, sir, you gotta get over here. He goes, the guy that we just let out of jail, he's going to the bathroom on top of Mullah Omar's desk. (laughs) (laughs) And I go, what? (laughs) And I go in there, and he left a mess (laughs) on top of that desk. And that was his, Uh. just what he felt he needed to do. (laughs) <laughs> and then he told Karzai, I'm on my way to Uruzgun province. When I get to Tarenkaut, I'll let you go. I'll let you know, and uh, we'll start clearing that place out. And, uh, you know, Karzai put governors in Oregon province, Zabul province, Farrar province, um, uh, Nimruz province, Helmand province. Helmand was the one that we got the largest number of Taliban, al-Qaeda, and operational Russian equipment out of. Um, And we had to negotiate that, right? We had to negotiate that with the Taliban leader there that, you know, he wouldn't, you know, he'd be free to go off and do whatever Mm -hmm. he wanted to do. And, you know, Karzai said, yeah, I don't care. And uh, Sharzai was the um, governor of Kandahar. Now, the governor of Kandahar is the senior governor in the South. That's just how it works Mm -hmm. out. Wields a lot of power, even though you have governors in all the other provinces. So he pretty much laid down the law and, you know, organized things. And slow but surely, you know, we started seeing security in southern Afghanistan just, you know, shape up. And then.
0: And how long did you stay in Afghanistan for?
1: Uh, for that first rotation mm-hmm. from November to March
0: and then uh, the— So you left in March of 2002. Right. Had the governors been put in position yet? Oh yeah, they were all put so, in position so in December. Point, yeah. So at that point, there's a pretty good. It looks. It's looking pretty good at this point.
1: It looks real good. It looks real good. They're doing it the Afghan way. Um, and uh, and the airfield in Kandahar was something that <clears throat> we wanted to secure uh, so that we could, you know, use it to bring in and bring out. You know supplies and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So General Mattis, one-star general at the time, the Marines got that mission, and so um, their operational area was was really confined to Kandahar Airfield. And then we had the siege of North up in Uzbekistan, and then. Then Commodore Harwood came in mm. to do siege sort of south, okay. Kandahar, and he worked side-by-side side with, um, with General Mattis. And we were in Kandahar, and our sole advise and assist responsibilities um, centered around Shurzai at this time mm-hmm. because Karzai had gone up to take, to be the interim prime minister up in Kabul, and so <clears throat> everything that we did, we did through, with, and by um, Karzai, or Shirzai, in coordination with Siege of North, who was C2ing us, and then Commodore Harwood, who was C2ing um, a separate direct action unit out of Kandahar, out of the Kandahar Airfield. And we got this task list from um, from Siflic, right the combined forces Uh, anyways it was a three-star headquarters right and so uh it was about 180 different places they wanted to go to and that was our tasking to to go do that we had to get that done so when you say go
0: to what do you mean go to like like they thought
1: they thought it was places that had intel or had bad guys in it, and mm-hmm. all under 180 or, of them were dry
0: holes. Like towns or villages or like actual target packages? Targets, right. Got it.
1: Without the target packages. It was just okay, a location, just and uh, we think there's something there. Uh, but the places that – all 180 of them were dry holes. But the places <laughs> that we got all the computers and all the stuff that uh, – that, um, Osama bin Laden was working on and Mullah Omar was working on were given to us by the Afghans that were on the ground. Hey, they worked out of that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they worked out of that one. They worked out of this one. And and we would get a call saying, hey, we got al-Qaeda there. See, that's where it became tricky because Taliban were Afghans. So you get them, and they either switch sides or they didn't switch sides, right? And if they didn't switch sides, well, um, you know, the— uh, you know, Afghans, you know, would would deal with them through Afghan law, right, and custom, whatever. Al Qaeda, different story. They were Arabs. And, whew, we had to be very, very careful because there was only one fate for them if they got in the hands of the Afghans who had been, families had been mm-hmm. uh, killed and tortured and so on and so forth. And they didn't have any real love for them, right? So that was a whenever we got a report in saying uh was al Qaeda su- suspected al Qaeda guy we would go boom and we would take we would take them into what i would call protective custody <laughs> right and then we would move them by our own means um to be interrogated uh uh and um by you know coalition side of the house right um and so i mean that's that's uh kind of difference between the Taliban and al-Qaeda at the time uh there on the ground and how they were just you know dealt with uh differently and we didn't really worry about the Afghans cuz they always switched sides but it was the <clears throat> it was the Al- it was the al-Qaeda because they were from Oman they were from Saudi Arabia they were from Pakistan they were from some other place mm-hmm. right and not welcome uh, no they were not welcome they, and you know one of the Worst places to go when we first got there was the soccer field because that's where all the hangings, the beheadings, and the stoning of women took place. I mean stoning women for and, and the killing of children for flying a kite. We handed out thousands of kites when we got down there because they're huge kite flying folks. They have competitions, you know, where they attack each other with the kites, you know. It's just like this huge thing. Anyways. Um. They loved it, right? Uh, we got them their music. We got them things to play with their music. We established businesses. One of the one of the first businesses that we established was a woman's um, laundry, <laughs> and then we used it to clean our own stuff because by the time we strategic got strategic thinking, yeah, right there. <laughs> by the time we got to Kandahar, we stunk, right? <laughs> I mean, it was pretty bad. So, anyways, we we did that. But I'll never forget. I was on. It was four four o'clock in the morning. I was up on the uh, Kandahar um, governor's mansion and I was doing my, had my uh, night vision goggles and I got my Afghan partner with me. And to keep them awake, all you had to do was give them the goggles, because it was like, cause it was amazing to them, right? It was amazing to them to see that technology and they could see because they'd go, and then they'd go back down, right? <laughs> and I know you can't see me on the radio, but I mean, it, it you know, it's just it is what it is. But I'm up there and I see the bakery that we had established, you know. And the guy goes in for work, and he gets in there, and he starts opening up. And that's where we got our bread every morning. And that nan bread, that football-shaped bread, it was warm, it was delicious. And by that time, we were getting peanut butter and jelly sent to us. And my wife sent me a tub of marshmallow because I'm from New Hampshire, and <laughs> Fluffernutters are really good, right, peanut butter and marshmallow sandwiches. So I was looking forward to it. But I'm watching this guy, and I go, oh, there he is, you know, uh, doing his thing. Well, he he starts, you know, he gets the dough all done and he gets in the bowl with his feet and starts kneading it. And I'm like, no, I did not just see that, right?
0: You can't unsee no. it. No, and I'm like,
1: and I know what his feet look like, right? And I'm thinking to myself, it's done. I, I can't eat bread again, right? And we go get the bread, and I'm sitting down, and the battalion commander's sitting there, and I'm watching the guys, and I go, all right, guys, I got to tell you. I got to tell you. This is what I saw today. <laughs> I got to share this with you. I hope I don't ruin it for anybody. You're but more, I, morally obligated but, um, to share this I, with you uh, guys. I I got to share it with them, and I did. And— They looked at me, and they go, I don't give a shit. I'm eating this bread. And he goes, the brick oven burned it all off. And I go, I can't get there. I can't get there, right? So it kind of ruined it for me. But anyways, it's it's good.
0: So by by the time you leave for the first time in March, you know it it looked like things are going pretty as good as you could want them to go. Mm -hmm. 2002, when do you get back there again? So, you know, it was interesting.
1: I get selected to be the 5th Special Forces Group S3. So I get bumped up from the battalion, go up to the group level, and we're now, of course, sustaining operations. uh, Well, it had gone to a different group, so we didn't have to worry about Afghanistan anymore at 5th Group because we didn't have anybody there because it was 3rd Group. But then we got the warning order for... Iraq Mm -hmm. so we start planning Iraq and then I get called into my group commander's office he says hey you just got by name requested to go do an interview to be the secretary of the army's aide oh joy I I go sir I just got the job that I've always wanted group S3 I mean it doesn't get any better than that in a a special forces group right In, in, in my mind anyways and I was like, sir, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. And he goes, well, you don't have a choice. And he goes, and you better not blow it because we need an SF guy at that level. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's never happened before. So we need you there, right? We need you there. So you go there and you do the best you can. If you don't get picked, don't worry about it. But don't sabotage it. <sighs> so I go there and Tom White is the secretary and I do my interview and um, – I'm sitting at home, and I get a call. It's Tom White. Don, you're going to be my aide. You got two weeks to get here. <laughs> and I go, holy crap. So I call my boss, and I tell him, and he goes, yeah, congratulations. It's great. It's going to be great for the SF community, blah, blah, blah. It's funny because the entire time I was the aide there, I never got a call from the SF community, <laughs> not <laughs> once. But I did what I was told to do, and I went there, and I was the aide for Tom White, and what a great experience that was. Right? How what long did you do it for? What a great – one year. Okay. That's all you get, right? Uh, and then you move on, and then uh, – so that's what, – What year was that that you were the aide? June of 2002 to June of 2003. Got it. Right? And then I went –
0: what did you before you jump into where yeah. you went next, what did you you know, you said it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough you know, as fortunate as you can get when mm-hmm. you become an aide, yeah. I was fortunate enough to be the aide for for the SEAL Admiral, Admiral McGuire, and definitely was, I loved was, him. was he's a great guy, great guy. But I was very lucky that I was able to do that job because I got to see a lot and got to understand what was happening and understand how these high level decisions were made and see mm-hmm. a little bit into the future. What was it from from your experience, what did you see that, what did you learn that was important?
1: Well, all of what you just learned. But um, more importantly, I learned um, how all the, you know, how these decisions are made inside the the political level, right, Um, from the top. And all these things that are done. So when I got back to the tactical level, I could explain to the guys what's going on at the strategic level. And although... Although they may not like it, at least I had a familiarity and an understanding and be able to explain to them what's going on in the whole process and why we're sitting here, you know, waiting to be ordered to go do something or what what have you. Uh, but I learned how the Army worked. They didn't know how the Army worked. Mm-hmm. Right? And a lot of us go through, hell, there's a lot of guys that get promoted to general officer and they don't even know how the <laughs> Army works, right, because they've never been in a job that taught them how the Army works. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of. So, you know, there I am. You know, I'm, you know, I'm the, uh, you know, battle buddy of the Secretary of the Army. You know, um, and he depends on me for everything, right? And um, and it was just a phenomenal opportunity to learn how the Army works and how the Army fits into the larger service and how the Joint Chiefs of Staff works mm-hmm. and you know uh, how all these things go. And and uh, so, uh, you know. I did not want to leave the, the Group S3 job at all. I just, you know, I didn't want to. And when I got asked the question by Secretary White, you know, do you want to be the aide? Do you want this job? Mm-hmm. And my answer was, sir, I'll be honored to serve as, as an aide. But I'd rather be the 5th Special <laughs> Forces Group S3. Jack. And I was told later that's why I got the job because everybody else they interviewed wanted to be the aide. <laughs> and I didn't. So they gave it to the guy that didn't want it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, And um, and I went there and I gave them 110% like I would do any job. If they made me the floor sweeper, it would be the best damn swept floor in the Army, right? <laughs> that's just the way it goes, right? You just go do whatever job they give you and do it the best of your ability. And then, you know, you know, good things will happen. And so... Uh, I did that, and then I went over to—I got picked up for lieutenant colonel, and I got picked up for battalion command, 1st Battalion, 3rd Group, and I had to do some joint time. So I went over and I worked for—I was the executive officer for the assistant secretary of defense for special operations, low-intensity conflict. So then I got to see how the OSD worked, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, and how all of that went. And I I always like to say how it works and doesn't work, right, because there's both sides of the coin, right? But it is good, excellent experience, and I met some really great people there uh, that I have relationships with to this day. Uh, But um, uh, that was 3, June of 2003, uh, and then I went and took command of 5th Special Forces Group, um, 1st Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group, the Desert Eagles, and we did two back-to-back tours to Afghanistan there, um, and uh, that was um, that was awesome. Uh, one of the only battalions that ever did back-to-back tours. It's just the way it worked out. Mm-hmm. So we went there for nine months, came back for six, went back for another nine months. Um, and then I went up to saw headquarters
0: the the amount of continuity you know it's one thing that when you compare let's say World War II with either the end of Korean War or the mm-hmm. Vietnam War where you have guys coming on tour they're going to do a year and then they're going to leave and that's right. that's that mm-hmm. um, that's almost a continuity wh- when you do nine months there six months home and then nine months back there mm-hmm. you start to get some real continuity what what did you see in that deployment uh, or those two deployments, you get to see like a bigger arc of the story. Yes. With with a better thread through it. So we really
1: saw the um, the uh, reemergence and the resurgence of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in 2005 when we got
0: there. May of 2005 is when we got there. And now, now, obviously 2003, I think I might have cut you off when you were about to say this before, but 2003, things are looking... About as good as we could hope in Afghanistan, the war kicks off in Iraq. Mm-hmm. That means people are, you know, American soldiers, resources are now pouring into Iraq. That sort of becomes the focus. And and that allows over in Afghanistan mm-hmm. where we had had a big presence. Now, all of a sudden, that's drawn down. Now, all of a sudden, the, you know, Al Qaeda and the Taliban start to see opportunities. Yes. And so when you roll back in, it's now 2005. Mm hmm. And now they've taken advantage of some of these opportunities. They have taken advantage of
1: the opportunities, yeah. And um, I'll never forget September 11th, 2005, I was on a hilltop with Charlie Company commander and uh, in the um, Kandahar province. And there were... 1,500 wave after wave of Taliban fighters coming at us. It was unbelievable. September 11th, 2005. That was, that was, I had been, you know, I mean, 2011, uh, I mean, uh, September 11th, 2001, wasn't that long ago, Mm -hmm. right? And you're right, I mean, we had, it looked good in 2002. Uh, 2003 and 4 we didn't have the resources that we needed but we were still doing nation building, we were still building an army, we were still building the police we were putting together their justice system, we were putting together their constitution so on and so forth all that was working but there wasn't anybody to keep the pressure on them mm-hmm. right? and so they researched and so we saw the brunt of that in Kandahar province and in 2000 uh 2005 september 11th operation medusa um and uh, uh you know it was a big operation um, and uh it was just it was just unbelievable what was going on during that time frame in terms of you know enemy capability capacity strength numbers um and it wasn't just Southern Afghanistan, which is where my battalion was. It was in the north, it was in the east. You know, predominantly at that time in the east, we were on the border, right? Mm-hmm. Wow, that was just incredible, right? Uh, so, well, it's we, going on all over the place.
0: Right, you know, when, when, you, when you talked earlier, you mentioned that, you know, we were helping them. We were writing their constitution. We were setting up their mm-hmm. government. We And there's a, you know, when I, when I talk about leadership a lot, um, which I do, <laughs> I talk about what happens when you try and impose your plan onto your subordinates, onto your team. You impose your plan onto mm-hmm. them. Look, you, you can kind of get away with it sometimes depending on the authority to, that you have, depending on the amount of leadership capital that you have, depending on how much oversight you're allowed to kind of sit there and if you're going to impose their plan the, a plan on them and then you have the tenacity and the and the ability to sort of continue to put the pressure on them, then maybe Maybe you can pull it off, but it's much better from a leadership perspective to say, hey, Don, you know, here's this mission. How do you want to do it? And kind of let you come up with a plan. It seems like America has a tendency to want to impose, you know, our way onto countries, whether it's Vietnam, there's, there's the, 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 the Vietnam thing, the way that unfolded and the way we tried to sort of impose what we wanted it to look like. Mm hmm. And the Vietnamese don't like that. Mm -hmm. They they they've fought against that forever, and they've never been beaten. And so they weren't going to be beaten. And and it wasn't that they didn't like what we were saying. It's just that they wanted to say what they wanted to say. Mm -hmm. So so you know here we are with the Afghans, sort doing a little bit doing some imposition on them. Mm -hmm. And and the way that turns out, it's sort of like from a leadership perspective, if you don't have the the constant pressure to say, nope, nope, I, this is exactly what I want you to do, and I have the, the tenacity and the leadership capital and the resources to kind of make you do it, which, again, this isn't ideal. Mm-hmm. How do you think we find ourselves in a situation where we, we seem to make that, that seems to be our tendency to want to impose our our way, our plan onto other, onto other people?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, to your point, I mean it just it doesn't work out well, right? And and the way we had set it up there was the US was doing the military. The Germans were doing the police. The Italians were doing the justice system. And then there was this collective body that was writing the constitution. And <clears throat> we factored out one of the most important things that goes in a constitution or a or a document whatever they choose to call it. <clears throat> that establishes their their government and how their government is going to govern in a Muslim country, and that is they don't separate church and state right And that was one of the big mistakes of that document, right? Uh, and then we named the government um, for them as well, which you know they didn't like either. So one, once they got it turned over to them, they made you know Karzai went in and they made they made the changes, right. And we were building a top-down Western government, uh, police and military force, which isn't culturally the way they do things, right? It's very
0: decentralized.
1: Very decentralized. And And we're trying to centralize it. And we're trying to centralize it it from Kabul down, and they don't do that either. You know, their political system is very democratic to begin with. It's it's shuras and jurgas and it's local and it's consent among the tribal elders and the village elders, which are which are different, right? Because you have the tribal elders, and they may not be the elected village elders, right? But they still work together and they understand. And then they have a pecking order of the tribes. And so when stuff goes, when stuff is available, the tribes get their fair share based off of where they sit in the pecking order. And they're okay with this. Mm -hmm. But we don't like that a lot of times, right? Because we want the, the minority one to get the stuff but they're okay with the stuff they get because it's good enough right mm-hmm. so we went in and we mucked all that up right because we we're just not familiar with the tribes and it's the almost like we're too system.
0: idealistic about the way we think things are going to be I remember a, a, a very similar example we had these young Iraqi soldiers mm-hmm. and the the officers were skimming their paychecks and you know my guys come to me they're, they're, you got they're skimming the paychecks of these young enlisted guys so I start talking to my interpreters, and I go, "Hey, what's going on? Can you help us? You know, I want to understand what's happening." He's like, well, "Of course they are." He's like, "That the soldiers know that. That's mm-hmm. that's that's their boss, and he's going to take a little piece. That's mm-hmm. the way it works. Mm-hmm. That's 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 fine." So, us going in and trying to impose what we have this ideal of the way things should be it doesn't always match up culturally, and it turns into a problem. Yes. And that's exactly what, you know, I mean, the same thing happened
1: in Afghanistan, right? And we were obligated to fix it, which puts us in a position that we don't have any real authority to fix, right? They're not going to listen to us. They're still going to skim it. They're still going to do their thing. They'll just figure out a different way to do it. And although we see that as bad, that bad, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's just the way it is, right? And over time, these things will change, like we saw In Afghanistan, right now, the ambassador to the United States in Afghanistan is a woman. Never would have been that way in 2001 or 5 or 10. But in 20, it's a woman. That's great. That's progress. They'll figure it out, Mm -hmm. right? They have a great university system that they figured out. You know, it's one of the things we really didn't get involved in, and it works, (laughs) right? And I don't mean that. That everything we did was terrible because obviously it wasn't. But when you start getting involved in a country's institutions and you start getting involved in their culture and their society and you're an outsider, it's never going to be received well and you're probably going to, you know, trample over something that you should just, you know, just stay away from. But the good things will happen as they, you know, continue to move forward. And another thing, That a lot of people in the villages, they didn't want to go from the 7th century to the 21st century, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't want to. They were very happy being in the 7th century. Uh, You know, one of the things that I would always tell folks that would would come to, you know, to do humanitarian work in Afghanistan, I say, don't give them coats. Don't give them shoes. They don't want that. All they're going to do, they're going to smile at you. They're going to say, thank you so much. They'll even have kids running around with this stuff on. But as soon as you leave, the kids are taking it off, putting on their sandals. You know. They wear sandals, you know, even in the wintertime, right? They're not going to put on winter boots. They're just not going to do it. But they're going to take those winter boots, and they're going to put them on trucks, and they're going to go to Pakistan, and they're going to sell them, and then they're going to come back home because they don't have any use for them. What they have used for is paper and pencils and school products and things along those lines that they, that they will use and they won't go sell because they want their kids to be able to draw. They want their kids to be able to write. They want them to be able to, you know, so stop giving them Converse sneakers. You know, it's, they're not going you know, to wear them. You're not going to see basketball courts break out, you know. They want soccer balls, and they'll play soccer barefoot and they'll outrun us, right, <laughs> in their bare feet. So let's just, you know, I think it's, you know, to your point, right, I mean it, you know, it kinda is, it's kinda is what it is and, and uh, our guys would see it because our guys would stay there and, you know, all the boots and the shoes and the jackets and, you know, they don't wear hooded sweatshirts, you know, give them blankets. Right? They're not going to sport a, a hooded jacket with a hood on it in the middle of uh, the Afghan villages. They stick out like a sore thumb. It's not what they wear, right? So, you know, they like cooking equipment. You give them cooking equipment. They make, mm-hmm. they make a great stew, um, you know. Um, you might pay for it <laughs> for a few days if, if you eat it on our stomach, right? And the other thing that we were doing was we were introducing medical supplies that were causing more harm than good because we needed the medical supplies because the way we grow up and live in America, our immune system is much different than than what they look. And I used to tell stories. I used to tell a doctor, we'd get an Afghan in with a head injury, right? And a bullet wound through the head, right? And the guy, uh, he's expectant. And I go, oh no, I wouldn't be so sure. Please don't call him expectant. This is an Afghan. They have incredible healing, um, it's just the way it is. I get a call from the doctor the next day. Hey, Don, you're never going to believe this. The guy's sitting up, spouting all kinds of things in, in you know, Pashto, and I go, well, of course he is. He's an <laughs> Afghan. Yeah, th- you know, that might have put down an American soldier, but not an Afghan. That's just the way they are. So please, you know, I, w- I used to go over when our when our Afghan partners would come in, and I would Make sure I'd say, please, and I'd have my medics there, and I'd say, just watch this guy, because they're going to say expectant, and we know that he might not be. Sometimes, yes. Most of the time, no. Uh, And, you know, they just have a different constitution because of the way they have to, um, you know, operate. And if we bring in all of our amenities, we weaken them, and we make them more susceptible to getting sick mm-hmm. and and dying
0: yeah and it's not their <clears throat> their way of life it's
1: not it's their, their way of life. of life and 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 they don't want it right. right you know they do have their idea of of uh medical care so don't exceed it right <laughs> just come up to it bring it back bring the doctor back back bring the nurse back bring those skills back that the taliban had attrited down mm-hmm. to nothing and that's what they need mm-hmm.
0: Um, so those, so those two deployments back to back, that's 2000, was, was it 2006, 2007? So it was or
1: 2005.
0: 2005 to six and six to seven. Yeah. And those, so what, what type of operations were your guys doing? Cause, cause now you you were the battalion, first battalion commander of mm-hmm. third special force. What, what operations were you guys, were your guys doing?
1: So we were doing, uh, we were assisting the Afghan national army at the time with, uh, you know, um, shaping uh, and clearing operations, right? Uh, And then we'd want to put, we'd want to hold that area in a way that we hadn't been holding it before. So we introduced kind of the hold, because it used to be shape it, go clear it, and then leave, Mm -hmm. and then they'd come back in. So let's hold it. Let's figure out a way to hold it. And that's where the first ideas about um, bottom-up security Mm -hmm. came into play in 2005,
0: six and seven. But so you're, so you're setting up uh what was it? Afghan police. Was it local police? The idea
1: of Afghan local police, right. Came God. in there. Um, and at that time we were just calling them the Arbakai, Right. And we had the
0: support of the, and Arbakai means like security, local security. Yeah.
1: It means their local security. So like back in the day when they were fighting Alexander, the great and Genghis Khan and the Brits and the Russians, <clears throat> the Kabul, the king of Afghanistan, wouldn't send down national troops to deal with the problem. He would organize local, Arbakais, mm-hmm. and the village elders and the tribal elders. They'd go and they'd get their weapons out of their, you know, um, out of their huts and they mud huts and they would come and they would report and they would defend Afghanistan. Yeah, and that's how they would do it.
0: Yeah, there's so many similarities, you know, from, from my experience in Iraq and, and in 2006 and in the city of Ramadi. The, when the, the army came in, look, the army worked hard. They, when the Iraqi army came in, mm-hmm. they worked hard, they, they sacrificed greatly, they fought hard. They were a bunch of Shia mm-hmm. going into a Sunni city. And that right there, you're already starting off on the wrong foot. I mean, and that's not even putting, that's putting it extremely mildly right. to say you're starting off on the wrong foot. You, you deal with people that have a history of killing each other. Mm-hmm. And so you got the strong Shia army coming into the Sunni city. And look, the Sunnis inside Ramadi realized, look, the, they're after Al-Qaeda. They're mm-hmm. after these insurgents. They're after these foreign fighters. So we were able to to get through it. hmm but it wasn't until the, the, the sons of Iraq and the Iraqi police, the local, the local Sunni tribesmen, tribal leaders, the Sheikh said, you know what? We wanna defend our own city. Let us, put our tri- let us put our tribesmen in the police force. That's what we did. And then it was a game changer mm-hmm. because now you had the local tribal leader, had his tribesmen with police uniforms on, authorized by him, saying, yep, we're, we don't want bad guys here. And the local populace is going, yep, that's, that's our tribe, and there's several tribes there, multiple tribes, but they all agreed that that's what needed to happen. Mm-hmm. So this idea of you know decentralized command, but also this idea of, hey, the people that are on the ground that are from there, they know who's good and who's bad, and the local populace is gonna support the neighborhood kids that are now neighborhood police.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's just, it's, it, it, we were lucky enough to kind of watch that unfold. I was lucky enough to watch that unfold and, and see those, the, what they called the sons of Iraq. And it was interesting too, because in Iraq, there had, been, there had been out in Al-Qaim, the Marine Corps had pushed through Al-Qaim. And when they did it, there was a bunch of locals going, hey, there's bad guys in that building over there. There's bad, And so the Marines said, hey, you know what? Let's organize these guys. Mm. And they made this, this thing called Desert Protector which was, hey, if you're a local and you wanna help us out, cool, you can join this program called Desert Protector. And they started this and it was working pretty well. Well, when Maliki got elected, all of a sudden he looks out at Al-Ambar province and and they got all these desert protectors out there and he goes, wait a second, now I got a bunch of random rogue uh, security forces running around, I can't have that, I can't can't have that. So he shut it down, Mm -hmm. which, which was not a great move. But you can see from his perspective, he doesn't want a bunch of rogue paramilitary units running around. But we were able to convince the the sheikhs in Ramadi because they were asking, we want to do Desert Protector. We want to do that. We were able to say, look, we, we can't do Desert Protector. It's not around anymore, but you can be Iraqi policemen. Mm-hmm. And you can be local and we'll help you train. And that's what we did. So what you're talking about, it's very similar, mm-hmm. very similar. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, as you pointed out, the the cultures are, you know, very similar uh, in the way they approach things, and there's the principles that really work and apply from one place to the other. The techniques and the tactics and the approach might require adjustment, but nonetheless, the standard principles remain the same, and that and that's what you're talking about. And <clears throat> I think that uh, one of the biggest things that we saw in 2005 to 2007 was that this bottom-up approach has merit over a top-down approach, right? Although there are aspects of the top-down approach that you still need to apply. But really, if you're talking about security and safeguarding a population and making that area an area that the enemy can't operate in, uh that's going to be the way that you need to go, and from two thousand seven five to seven we learned that. but the other thing that we learned was during this time frame, you know the u s um, you know transitioned the mission to NATO, and that's when it became a full fledged NATO operation and A very good friend of mine, Dave Frazier, who's written a book about Afghanistan and about his time there during this time, took over. Uh, That's when they went from uh, 06s, colonels, uh, and in some cases Navy captains, commanding the regional commands, you know, north, south, east, and west, uh, in Afghanistan, to general officer-level headquarters. And Dave came in. He was a Canadian special ops guy uh, who I had had a relationship with, a really, really good guy. And when we got into... uh, Afghanistan he said hey I need you to come over here I, I need to talk to you about you know what we're going to do and how we're going to do this because we got a problem uh, and Warren um, we came in here to do peacekeeping operations and although it's not a popular thing to say my assessment is is that we're fighting an insurgency and a deadly one. And he knew that that was our assessment as well. Our intel guys and everybody had the same assessment uh, going in there from 1st Battalion, 3rd Group, and our group headquarters (coughs) uh, up north. So anyways, um, he called me in, and we said, well, I think we can come up with an operation using the Afghan uh, um, National Security Forces to come up into this district, Panjouay, and take over this stronghold of insurgents, right? And so we went back, we did some planning, we came back and briefed him, and so what Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, got the mission, and it was a, instead of coming at them from, you know, uh, Kandahar Province, you know, directly, or Helmand Province, where they expect you to come, We went all the way down south into the Reg Desert, which is the Red Desert. Now, when you fly in southern Afghanistan and you're flying, (coughs) uh, you know, east to west or west to east, there's the Reg Desert that heads all the way down into Pakistan, and it's nothing but desert. And then there's a distinct line that goes into the built-up areas and the green areas and so on and so forth. And it's just so blatant. Nobody goes down there. Only Bedouins go down there. So we did our infiltration in the Panjway district that way. It took three days. We did vehicle recovery operation. I mean, it was ugly, right? But we got there. And completely surprised the Taliban in Panjway, And it was a huge victory. So we routed them up. And then um, my guys were up for over 96 hours straight. Me and my command sergeant major went in once we took um, Panjuaid District. And this is where I told you earlier, we got up on top of the hill and saw saw all the Taliban coming. It was unbelievable. Well, anyways, once we got control of that situation, our guys, my, those guys hadn't slept for 96 hours, and I called my headquarters and I said, hey, I'm going to stay. Sergeant major and I are going to stay here overnight. So canceled the CH-47 coming to get us <clears throat> and so we did that and I knew if I had told my guys that the sergeant major and I were gonna pull the entire night shift so they could sleep I would have got a bunch of pushback right no sir you're not gonna be pulling guard no, 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 yeah yeah so I just kept my mouth shut and I said hey I'll take first watch and they go oh you don't have to do that and I go no I'll take first watch well these guys went down hard And the sergeant major and I just stayed up all night Well, about two o'clock in the morning my company commander, Jared Hill, comes out. He goes, sir, what the heck's going on? It's two o'clock in the morning. I was supposed to have shift. You know, I I slept through it. I'm sorry. I go, no, 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 we got this. Go back to bed. We're good. And he didn't argue with me. He went back to bed. Uh, And um, uh, none of them had to pull shift. It was just me and the sergeant major. Uh, and we did radio watch and did the whole thing and we called in all the all the times right and and that was that uh, and uh, these guys got up not only did I have that but I also had the helicopter come in with hot chow <laughs> right hot breakfast right and so uh, I said you guys get your hot breakfast and uh, sergeant major and I will hand it back over to you and you know you got it right and Um, You know, it was just amazing what these guys had done. General Fraser in his book writes today about our guys, and he says they saved the NATO mission because if we didn't have these special ops guys to do this, we would have been routed by the Taliban, and it would have been a huge political nightmare for NATO. 1st Battalion, 3rd Group, my guys, got awarded for the first time the um, equivalent of the Canadian Presidential Unit Citation, the only foreign military in the history of the Canadian military to get that award. And they got that award, and it sits in the battalion headquarters at Fort Bragg proudly. And, you know, they sent down their, their equivalent to their... Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to Fort Bragg and all the guys got got it pinned on him. It took him uh, Four years to get it approved, but he didn't quit and he finally got it approved and I was I was just getting out of the war college at That time It was 2009 when the when they when they did the award and and I was just so proud to see these guys get the award and do do their thing but um, Yeah, it was I mean, and, and that that's really what what kind of got us thinking. And you know who it got thinking? General McChrystal. And when he came in in 2010 to take over, he was all about bottom up, all about it. And then when General Petraeus came in to take over for him, oh, he loved village stability operations and Afghan local police. And...
0: So when, when you, before we get into that, so you get done with your battalion commander tour, mm-hmm. 2007, something 2000, like
1: that? Yeah, yeah, July of 2007.
0: And you change command and then you go to war college. Uh, yep. I go up to USASOC headquarters
1: for, uh, from, from basically August to uh, May of 2008, and I get selected for the war college and I go off to the war college. But another great opportunity when I went to our three star headquarters which is a place nobody wants to go but you know you go there I got put in the to be the deputy G8 and the deputy what the G8 does in that headquarters is they do do all the combat developments and the resources and the budget and you know all that stuff and uh, so I learned that And then I learned how USASOC not only fits into SOCOM and how we compete for resources there, but also how we compete for resources in the Army and how our tier one guys, how they get all their resources and how the Rangers get all their resources and everybody, and so that was huge, right? And so I was right in the middle of that process because we were right in the middle of of doing all of that uh, for the next five years and I got put in charge of um, of the uh, movement of 7th Group from Fort Bragg to Destin, Florida mm. for their new headquarters and setting that up and what that would look like. And although not perfect, we really, really did create an optimal special forces group headquarters with all the ranges and all the things associated with it so they could do all the levels of training right there. And what you learn about working with communities and briefing communities because there's noise things and noise studies and this, that, and the other, housing issues and, you know, is there going to be enough housing? Uh, You know, how is this all going to... I mean, it was just unbelievable, right? So that was another part, you know, like I told you before with the Secretary of the Army and then working at ASD and then uh, the Joint Staff, and all that, all coming together, really gave me tremendous insight on, on how USASOC, you know, United States Army Special Operations Command works. And again, we have got a lot of guys that make very senior ranks and don't have any idea how that works because they don't get the opportunity to go there. And that was because I come out of battalion command, I get selected for the War College, and it's like, well, now what the hell are we going to do with them, right? <laughs> they had no place for me, right? And they said... Report to Usawk headquarters and they'll have a job. And I originally was gonna be in the J in the G three, but then I got stuck I got moved over to the G eight because an old boss of mine was the was the G eight, um, Jeffrey Putz. And he goes, Oh no, no. I want him <laughs> right. He's a farm boy, you're gonna work his ass off <laughs> for me, right? And uh, and he may not like it, but he's gonna do it. And so boom. So I went there and yeah, it was great, great, really great experience. Uh, learning then, how that works. And
0: then, what did you study at War College?
1: So I went to the War College, and I just studied that, you know, their curriculum, and you get a master's degree in strategic studies. So I was like, ah, oh, this is great, right? So I, I've I've worked at the strategic level, right, in three different assignments, uh, and I've worked at the operational level, and now I'm going to go and I'm going to get an education. Uh, in, the, uh, in, in strategic studies. And so it really, it, it brought together the job experience and then an education and kind of meshed that together for me. Uh, I got a business degree when I went to Command and General Staff College because I, I'm like, you know what? When I take over a unit, it, it can shoot, move, and communicate like nobody's business, right? God, do we suck at admin, <laughs> budget, you know, all that stuff that nobody likes to do and they're not comfortable doing it. So I ended up, you know, I got a business degree because I thought that that's what officers do, right? And so learning how to run a business, I said, you know, that's gonna help me out. And it did, mm-hmm. right? So I had the business thing going for me and then I had the, the got, you know, got to the War College, um, Carlisle and, and that was just uh, a great experience there as well. and um, uh, But I learned one thing at the War College. It's not necessarily the War College and what you learn there. It's winning the Jim Thorpe sports event <laughs> where all the War Colleges come to the Army War College and you compete, right, in a variety of different sporting events. and. The Army has only lost it twice.
0: Who'd they lose in it the to?
1: history of, they usually u- lose it to the Navy War College.
0: Huh. The, what are the events? The National
1: War College, their teams are so small, right? Because the school is so small, they get their butts kicked all the time. But the Army War College, and, you know, you got uh, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy. Uh, the Coast Guard Academy, mm. you know, you got all those guys that come down uh, and it's a, it's three days of feats of strength, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I loved it. Uh, and and you, you play all these sports, right, during the War College, only so that the coaches of the different teams in the Jim Thorpe sports competition can draft their athletes. And then you start training in January, after the first of the year, you get put on a team. And then you train all the way up to uh, uh, May when they have the event. What and what,
0: what, what event did you do?
1: I, I was in the 800-meter uh, relay and the five-mile run. And um, we won both those events. Um, we had a ringer. We had a uh,
0: <laughs> some guy with a 357
1: mile or something. <laughs> we had a a guy on on our team. He was a Marine on our relay team who was a um, you know Division One uh, relay national champion. Yeah. Uh, on a team, right? Yeah. And that's so, not fair. <laughs> and and our coach was in the 1972 Olympics as an 800 meter relay guy. And so the coach, you know, so he taught us, you know, how to run, you know, and and how to pace yourself and how to do it. Yeah, it was uh, a blowout. Uh, It was pretty cool. Uh, But I had the, um, what leg did I have? Oh, I had the first leg. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right, I had the first leg. He even knew how to set up people for the, what, legs. And, you know, and he stood right, right at the place and he said turn it on so as i ran by he goes turn it on and it was (laughs) you had so much left in you right even though i was last i picked everybody off right and that was the whole idea of it because people don't get trained on how to run it they just go you know and two laps around a track yeah you know you're gonna start feeling it yeah you know
0: no I, i the 800, so, which I never did, but I was reading an article about it somewhere along the way. And the 800, they say, is like the most painful event <laughs> because, you know, you're running 100 yards. It's yeah, over. Yeah. You, you run you run a, a mile or a 16 or even a marathon. It's at a lower level of intensity. Mm hmm. He, and this this article that I think I read, I think it was an article I read, but it pointed out the fact that there's zero recreational 800-meter <laughs> runners. They don't right. exist. They don't there's run. there's people who run marathons. There's people yeah. that do little sprint triathlons. Yeah. There's no one that just guts through <laughs> 800 meters, yeah. like, for fun. It yeah. doesn't happen. All right, so we wrap with the uh, Jim Thorpe yeah. championship. <laughs> that's right. And it's time for you to go back to work. And your next, your next thing is you go back, do you go back to Afghanistan again?
1: I do. I go back for Afghanistan again what proved to be 22 months.
0: And this is what, 2010, 2011?
1: 2010. Um, and I go back to Afghanistan as an advisor to the RC South commander. And at the time, it was a Dutch commander by the name of uh, uh, Major General de Cruyff. He was a Dutch guy. And we were having some. Uh, Gen- uh, General McChrystal was concerned about the problems with soft coordination, mm-hmm. so he said, "Hey, you're going to take command of CJSOFA, so."
0: So the you know. CJSOFA—that's the—that's a combined joint special operations task force Afghanistan. This is the correct. person that's going to be in charge of all special operations in Afghanistan. That's correct. And and you get you get tasked with that
1: outside of the the tier one guys. Right. Uh, Tier one guys not included. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, anyways, we uh, I'm going to take command of that. That's going to be my uh, brigade level command opportunity, uh, and I couldn't have been more excited. I have uh, Admiral Olson uh, uh, and General Kearney to thank for that. Um, They're the ones that picked me, so I was uh, had. A great relationship with Admiral Olson and uh, General Kearney. General Kearney was then the deputy, <coughs> the deputy of uh, SOCOM. But before that, and during my time as a battalion commander, he was the Soc- Special Operations Command Central commander as a two-star. So that's how I built that relationship with him and <coughs> uh, General Olson, or excuse me, Admiral Olson. I developed a good relationship with him, and so they picked me for that command. But there was some time there, so I went to – I said, hey, I'll I'll just go early, right, and I'll, you know, um, do whatever you need me to do. I'll work on a staff. I'll do whatever, you know, pick staples out of the rugs. I don't care. Just, you know, just get in there early and get myself, you know, ready for, uh, you know, the, uh, the command. And they said, hey. General McChrystal wants to go down south and be the special operations liaison um, to General De Cruyff, who was not uh, very happy about the coordination with his headquarters in RC South and the uh, soft guys. So I went down there and I got myself established and did that. Well, the interesting thing is General De Cruyff went to the Army War College and there's 20 seminars in the Army War College and you get assigned to the seminar Uh, and there's a 21st one and that's for all the guys deploying out of the War College whose families stay right so my wife was in seminar 21 when I left she stayed right there which was great continuity for her and the kids because they were there my kids wrestled so one of them wrestled for the high school so they were It was just good continuity. Um, And we thought it was only gonna be for a year, uh, but it ended up being for 22 months. So Mm -hmm. they ended up staying there almost three years, which was really good for them. But General de Cruyff went to the War College and he was in seminar eight. And I was in seminar eight. And we called ourselves the eight balls. And so when I went in to introduce myself, and he said, where are you coming from? And I said, the Army War College. He goes, oh, I went to the Army War College too. And I go, really? that's great sir I mean I loved it and he goes oh I loved it too I was in seminar 8 and I go well so was I and he goes no way and, and we had the same instructors the same guys there so we were able to share that we were able to share stories about being an 8 ball right and it was automatic you know relationship establishment rapport right. and everything and so all I did was go to his morning meetings be available for him whenever he needed. Whenever there was operations coming up, I made it sure that they they were deconflicted, and <clears throat> I end up traveling with him everywhere he went in Afghanistan, uh, on his plane, hmm. everywhere he went in the south. That's what he wanted me to do, and it was it was like simple and. General McChrystal was happy because he was not getting any more complaints from the R.C. South commander. And, you know, and uh, and they were valid complaints, I might right. say, right? I mean, you know how that goes. There's just so much going on, right? And everybody's trying to do the right thing, and they're trying to, they're trying to get it done. And, you know, things slip. So uh, they got the 06 now, mm-hmm. you know, a colonel there to make sure that doesn't happen. And if it does happen, he got one guy to blame, me, yep. nobody else. So it was good. Uh, and, you know, we just tightened that up. And, you know, it wasn't just soft. You know, it was conventional side. Mm-hmm. It was all kinds of, you know, everything's going on. The State Department and what they're doing and then the, the uh, you know, other things going on. So, hey, it just worked.
0: And how long did you do that for?
1: I did that for uh, six months. Uh, let's see, from June to... Yeah, June to December, six months.
0: And then after that, you took over the C G Sodaf.
1: Yeah, I went home for two weeks, uh, for a break. Take a nice vacation. Yeah, two and weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> went home for two weeks. Came back, took command, and stayed in command uh, of of um, of the special operations there. Uh, you know, the C G Sodaf until um, May of two thousand eleven. Uh, and this is when. Home.
0: And this is when you started, or. at what what point did the did the vso the village stability operations start at it was it at this time yes so because i remember i was getting ready to well i retired in 2010 and i was i was running training and as i was running training we were starting to have guys do training missions based on VSO based on going out and doing tribal engagement and key personnel engagement and going to meet people in villages and having them How they're gonna set security and all that stuff. We started doing that in 2010 Mm -hmm. So I I don't know exactly when it came came to fruition But from what when did it
1: so it would have been about April of 2010 Okay, That it all started coming to fruition because I got there in 2009 I did that then I took command June of 2009, and then I didn't leave until May of 2011. Right, uh, so it was it was about that time frame, um, and um, you know it was a it was a collection of people that were you know putting this together. But I happened to be the commander that did the bulk of operationalizing it, which is the hardest thing to do. Right, the first guy in the breach. Right. <laughs> Um, you know it's it's hard because you got people pushing back against it and you got people that are all for it and you know all, even though General Crystal wants it to happen, you know there's there's many people there with him that don't want it to happen and you got the international community and and even my own community, right uh, they were skeptical of it because. They saw it as a special forces mission, so bringing in MARSOC and bringing in the SEALs to do this kind of mission. They were like, hey, that's not their mission, and this is a bad precedent, and this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, hey, but, you know, okay, so give me more ODAs, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I came up with a term, and the Joint Staff, because uh, everyone was using the word fungible, right? And I happened to be giving somebody a brief, right, and, and um, it was about using... Special ops, and you know we're better when we work together, right? Because we have just we just are, right? So, anyways, um, uh, I said, and you know, special ops puts the fun in fungible, <laughs> you know, because that was the big strategic word at the time, right? Uh, and so, the more you could show you were fungible, the better off you were. So, we're fungible as hell, right? And and that's what that's what we do. So, uh. So anyways, we, yeah, we, we just, um, you know, came together and did it, and every single, whether it was MARSOC, whether it was, uh, whether it was um, you know, their teams or the, the Navy SEAL teams or the Special Forces teams, these platforms did really, really well.
0: And just give us a, a quick brief on the idea. Of of the VSOs of the of the village stability operations. What was so if if I was an ODA team leader, I was a SEAL platoon leader. What was what was my mission? What was it going to look like? So your mission is to go is to go into uh,
1: say it's uh, you know Kandahar province and it's district X, and you're going to go in there and you're going to figure out what is the best village to start a village stability platform, which consists of your team. And uh, additional augmentation of intel guys and and other things that you're going to need in order to be able to operate there. You're going to go in. You're going to talk to the village elders and the tribal elders, and you're going to figure out where you need to be. Now, they're going to tell you where you need to be, uh, and you're going to go with it. And if it's the wrong place, don't worry about it. We can change it. So just, just go with the flow. Just go in there. They're in charge. They're the guys that are going to tell us where to go, and over time you'll figure out if it's the right place or not. And then working with them, if you've got to change the place, you don't want to. Because what's going to happen is they're of this top-down mindset. Okay, the U.S. is coming in, and they're going to come in with a whole bunch of good stuff, and we're going to be able to take advantage of it. Well, they're going to realize over time that we're not coming in there with Jack.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah, just go talk yeah. to the ODAs <laughs> and the SEAL platoons that are out there in the <laughs> middle right. of nowhere. That's right. <laughs> and so... Some HESCO that, barriers <laughs> and a freaking sack <laughs> comment, <laughs> yeah, and antenna. Right. Have fun, boys. Right.
1: And we're not coming in with a, with a big bag of money and a whole bunch of things that they're going to be able to, you know, take advantage of. And then they're going to realize, wow, holy crap. Right? And... But what we are going to do is we're going to come in with the ability to be able to prove to them that they can secure themselves, and we'll develop this Afghan local police program, and they're in charge of nominating the people for this program so we, we get their fingerprint, their thumbprint on that guy. And so if that guy does something, it discredits the village elder and the tribal elder. So you're not going to really get back at it. Now, did we have some problems? Yes, we did, but the problems were minute. And we started, we started clearing these, you know, clearing and holding these areas uh, and uh, with the Afghan local police program. And
0: and it's based more on relationships that you form with the locals Mm -hmm. more than it's based on imposing your will on the locals, which you can only do that if you've got the strength and the consistency and to, to do that all the time. Right. Which is. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. And so some of
1: the challenges that I was presented with was, hey, you're putting these guys in in harm's way. They're going to all get killed. One night, the Taliban is just going to overrun them. And I said, well, <clears throat> I don't think so. Uh, our guys are smarter than that. They're not going to allow themselves to be overrun. They're going to keep their finger on the pulse on the intel. We're going to use the... Relationships that they have in the Pashtun Wali Code, and people kind of laughed when I said Pashtun Wali Code. Yeah, Pashtun, but it is strong, you know, and it consists of, you know, supporting strangers. It consists of revenge, right? And that's what they basically operate off of. And they accepted us in, and we became their responsibility. And as a result of becoming their responsibility, they didn't let anything happen to our guys. Now, did we get guys injured and did guys get killed? Yeah, but that was in combat operations. And they died right along with us, right? Uh, It's just combat operations are combat operations. But did we ever get overrun? No. And this was in the middle of the time where you saw conventional outposts being overrun, right? you know, all over Afghanistan, and this is conventional units that put themselves in valleys uh, and in places that they shouldn't have put themselves because they were operating independently of the um, the Afghan culture's um, protection, right? And so, ended up by 2011, when I left, we had 90 locations and none of them ever got run over. None of them ever got attacked. The Afghans were all over. It. I mean, they knew, and they never lost a fight against the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were protecting their families, and they took it seriously. And when they saw the progress they were making, and this big bad Taliban guy was defeatable, and they saw, they were like, whoa. And then they got the will to fight, and they had the mission, and they realized that that their freedom and their destiny to live life the way they wanted to live was in their hands and that they didn't need the American military or international forces to secure their freedom for it. They could do it themselves, but we need your help a little bit, right? We need your help a little bit, but when we got it, we got it. And that's where the transition piece came in.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because— you know, I was saying that not only can we, as Americans, impose our will on every village in the country. Guess who else can't do that? The Taliban. <laughs> the Taliban. That's, <laughs> That's right. right. So so if you got to you got to make those connections. It's decentralized command. It's building relationships mm-hmm. and had a pretty positive. I mean, a very positive impact on what was happening in Afghanistan. 2000. What was that? 2010, 2011 mm-hmm. into 2012 and 13. 13. Things are moving. In the right right direction. Right. And, you know, like I said,
1: General McChrystal put it in place. Uh, He was replaced by uh, General Petraeus, and General Petraeus became a huge, huge advocate of this. And one of the things that General Petraeus did was he said, Don, what do you need to expand this? And I said, well, we're kind of limited, sir, with just our special operation forces. But if we could get augmentation from the conventional forces, then we could expand, right and we could we could use the conventional forces to augment and not as guards for our bases because we don't need those. We got the Afghans to do that. but just as additional people, and we can train them on on how to do it, but and then we can expand ourselves because we have we have a little bit more people, but not too big because we can't get too big because then that, that gets out of our – So he went to the army, and got us a battalion, right? And we used that battalion to um, to augment not every team, but certain teams in certain areas, and it allowed us to expand faster. And one of the one of the areas that we needed to do this was Konar, right? And we brought in a guy uh, by the name of Jim Gant who had relationships with the tribal elders out there, both in Pakistan and in, um, and in Afghanistan, and we gave him the village stability operation mission. Now, Gantt worked for me when I was a battalion commander. He wrote a paper that General Olson, or Admiral Olson really loved, uh, and so did Petraeus, and so did others, and they asked Scott Miller, who was my boss, one-star, then two-star, Major General Miller, um, who was my boss during this whole time and who I worked through in order to get, you know, village stability operations and Afghan local police started. And, and he was pretty brilliant in, and you know, how he got that approved through Karzai and so on and so forth because everybody was in the international community was very concerned about, oh, you're going to arm all these guys and then they're going to create all kinds of humanitarian uh, violations. They're going to kill people and, you know, Karzai was worried that they would get too strong and take over the government, but you know when you go down there at that level they didn't have those they didn't have those aspirations they just wanted to they, control their village <laughs> that 's it they just wanted to live, control their village, have their family, get their family educated, uh, bring their crops to um, market and live right and not have anybody bother them uh, they, they had they had no design to take over Afghanistan. Um, because they saw Kabul as a as as big a problem as anything else right so um yeah
0: people there's people that live in Montana and Wyoming that don't really care what's <laughs> going on in Washington <laughs> DC and they certainly don't want to move there they don't want to move to New York they don't want to move to LA they they just want to live there exactly their
1: lives. exactly and so same principle applies and so you know they you know we uh you know, we we took advantage of that, and it cost us one-eighth the amount of money that it cost to make an Afghan police officer or military officer or uh, Afghan police officer or army. And you didn't need big garrisons, right? And they walked to work. Mm-hmm. So there's no infrastructure, Right. And it's the
0: ultimate decentralized command, right?
1: Right. It, it really is. It, and, and, and it, it, you know, it was working. And they could sustain it, you see. It wasn't anything they couldn't sustain in the long run. So um, – and every place was different. You know, if you saw one village stability operation and one Afghan local police uh, in a village, well, you only saw one, right, because they're <laughs> all different, Right. And they're different because, you know, different people are are making it work, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the tribes are different, and the ideas are different. You go up north, yeah, to, the
0: Terrain's different. Yeah, The, terrain's the way different. they're making a living is different.
1: Yes, everything's different. So, you've seen one, you've seen one. So there, there's there, there isn't this, there isn't this like uh, you know magic formula where you you know you got one. And you take that one and you impose it over here. No, all different, right? And what I really liked was, we carved this up into Marsoc territory, into Naval Special Warfare territory, into Special Forces territory, and I, I would get the same guys back mm-hmm. all the time, right? They would they would come in for their six months, they would out, rotate out in their six months, and we got that kind of continuity, right? And we weren't reinventing the wheel where, you know, special forces are coming in. It happened every once in a while. Um, and I remember uh, when I took command of the Siege of Soda Fe, um <clears throat> we were coming up. Let's see, this was April. I said, hey, listen. I walk into this headquarters, and I see all these lickies and chewies and all, this, all these condiments and ice cream and all this other stuff. And I go, hey, if our guys on the ground can't have this, we're not having it. I mean, that's just the way it is, right? And... Let's talk about Thanksgiving. And let's talk about Thanksgiving right now. It's April. If they don't get turkey, we don't get turkey. <laughs> right? And we had the technology. We had refrigeration units we could put out there, not not tax anything. We had stuff that would run off of um, off of uh, what are those panels? Why am I having solar, panels? A good, solar panels? solar yeah. panels, we had all kinds of stuff. Uh, and we could, you know, uh, there was all kinds of innovative ways that we could get turkey out to them. Now, some guys got the frozen butter balls. <laughs> they put them in the freezers, and they were good to go. But what about those that we couldn't get that stuff out to? Well, I had this. I looked at Ron Reagan, my, my uh, log guy, and I said, hey, you got to make this happen. And he goes, all right, we'll, we'll get it happen. So Julia Furman, a, uh, at the time a young lieutenant uh, log officer, comes up with this plan and she goes, "Sir, we got it. I think we're going to be able to meet your intent for Thanksgiving." And I go, "All right. Well, let's let's get it. Operation Turkey Drop. <laughs> and our um our guys figured out how to drop live turkeys in. <laughs> And I said, "Okay, is this going to be cost prohibitive or mm-hmm. what?" and they go oh no it's 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 great we We do it with the normal runs, but we just you know we have got our own shoots, we, we pack our own stuff we've done uh, several rehearsals, we haven't had any misfires I said, All right. so I'm not going to get in trouble with PETA by dropping in a turkey and the turkey you know the parachute doesn't you know and I was just kidding, of course uh, and and uh so we did it we did operation turkey drop we got them out there in september all the turkeys because we had to drop grain and feed and you know we had to tell them how to take care of the turkeys and so they did it and on thanksgiving day i got all kinds of storyboards right <laughs> of these guys eating their turkeys everyone's happy our guys are happy because they get turkey and all the fixins went out there with it right i mean boxes of um of stovetop stuffing <laughs> and, you know, all that good stuff, right? And so these guys are eating that stuff. Well, come January, I happen to roll out to our uh, one of my, the Marine detachments out there, and at the time, the young captain there was the son of the commandant of the Marine Corps. And I was going out to see him, and I land on the ground and dust settles, and the next thing I know, I got these two humongous turkeys on each side of us. And I go, what the heck are these guys doing out here? And he goes, he goes oh, those are, those are our turkeys, you know. I go, these are the same turkeys that we dropped to you? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he wants to get off the subject as fast as he possibly can. But these turkeys are snuggling up right next to me. And he told me what their names were. <laughs> oh, oh and, you know, domesticated Gertrude, turkeys. And, yeah. and I, we continue to walk. And we, closer we get to the range, the turkeys break off. And they go into this tent. <laughs> That's got, and I walk over to the, and they go, no, 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 sir, it's this way. And I go, no, I'm going to see what the turkeys are doing. The farmer in me is now very interested. So I go over to see these turkeys, and they got this, like, they got, they're hooked up. They got hay and, you know, a place to eat and drink and uh, tables that they jump up on and all these things. And I go, what's going on? He goes, he goes, oh, sir. And he's looking down at his feet. He goes, the guys, they so got the turkeys out here. They named them. The guys just <laughs> fell in love with them, and they couldn't kill them. And I go, you steely-eyed marine special operators couldn't take take two turkeys down for Thanksgiving. No. We couldn't do it. And I go, all right, this is great. And I said, hey, I don't blame you. You know, I, I get it. Uh, and uh, – but he goes, you know, the Afghans are waiting for the day. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> They're waiting for the day, yeah, our cooks, are. right? And so a special forces ODA, which I was getting, my point is it, we didn't always have the flexibility of replacing Marines with Marines and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But SFODA gets out there. And that next Sunday... I got a storyboard, and they're eating the two turkeys. <laughs> they didn't have the same connection with those turkeys Ugh. as the Marines did. <laughs> and the Afghans, the cooks, they're all smiling. You know, they yeah. got their, you know, yeah, they're all happy. But anyways.
0: Uh. <laughs> then, uh, so you were in that tour um, for 22 months. You are over there in Afghanistan. And then what, what? what happens when you get done with that?
1: So I get done with that. Uh, and they say, "Hey, you're going to go to the Joint Staff, and you're going to be the deputy uh, deputy special operations uh, guy in the Joint Staff, and I'll be working for uh, General Nagata."
0: Now, the 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 VSO idea seemed to have faded, and and lost some of its. Uh, steam, not so much from what was happening in the field, but it seemed like we went in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what caused that?
1: Well, when I got back, so I went to the joint staff, uh, reported there in June of 2011, worked on the staff, and um, there was emphasis taken off of village stability operations uh, and Afghan local police from 2011 to 12. But um, I got... Told, hey, uh, you know, General or Admiral McCraven was now the um, SOCOM commander, and uh, General Allen was the commander in uh, Afghanistan, and they wanted more emphasis placed on VSO. So I got told that I would be going back in June of 2012 to June of uh, 2003. It was going to be a year, anyways. And they said, hey, Uh, and and Tony Thomas was going to be the commander there, uh, two-star commander, and I was going to be the one-star SIFSOC A commander with the portfolio for VSO ALP, and um, uh, I'll think of his name as we go, but Air Force one-star. I was still a colonel. I hadn't hadn't come out on the 07 list yet, Uh, but uh, the one-star was going to work as a deputy for uh, General Thomas, and he was going to do all the direct action stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So two portfolios, one commander, bringing SOF under one command. Um, and, you know, Tony Thomas got that. And <clears throat> so uh, uh, we went in there under that construct, and and I was told, get this back online, get it expanded. get it. So we did that. And by the by June of 2013 90% of the 90% of the uh, rural area was in the control of the the, um, Afghan government Uh, and it was due to village stability operations Afghan local police and (coughs) we started doing transitions so we were transitioning to the Afghans they had put a um, General Ahmedzai became my battle buddy, and he was in charge of the Afghan local police for the Minister of Interior. Um, and And so he was my battle buddy and I worked with him to ensure that he could he understood and could implement this mission, everything from... You know, making sure they got the training, make sure they got the weapons, make sure they got the oversight, make sure they got you know they're doing everything they possibly can, and it was integrated into the Afghan government fully and 100 percent, and we're out. And we had this on a timeline that took us out about you know 2015, maybe 2016, and we would have had completely transitioned it. And by that time, nearly 100 percent of Afghanistan would have been fully under the control of the uh, of the Afghan government. The Taliban at the time were saying we're done al-qaeda out no they, they were completely ineffective
0: again um, same thing i was talking about earlier they don't have the they don't have the resources to be in every single village and mm-hmm. get down to some local village with 280 people in it and and put the resources against it to get control of it That's impose right. their will on mm-hmm. it and meanwhile the locals obviously they live there they're not going right. anywhere. And there's
1: more of them than there are the Taliban right. capability to be able to do it. So it was, you know, it, it was just—
0: It was heading in a, in a good direction. It was heading
1: in a very, very, very good direction. Uh, and so, um, you know, by, by the middle of, by the middle of uh, 2013, um, and, and everything was, you know, <clears throat> falling into place to where the Afghans— and, and none of the things that they said, uh, you know, it wasn't a perfect— perfect program but what program is perfect Mm -hmm. it was good enough right and it was working Uh, and a lot of the things that people really had a problem with just didn't happen right Um, the humanitarian uh, you know incidents didn't occur to the extent that people said they were going to occur and and the uh, you know Karzai was not concerned that the Afghan local police were going to form You know, a huge militia Mm -hmm. and assault Kabul. (laughs) It just wasn't going to happen, right? All these things that they at the political level they were really nervous about Mm -hmm. just didn't happen, and so I mean, I mean, it was good, right? Uh, And and then you know, it's 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 2013, and people are wondering, hey, when you know, when are we going to get out of there? And so you know, the the political stuff started, you know, filtering into Afghanistan, and and you know, the ideas of pulling out and so on and so forth. uh, by 2014 and transitioning to non-combat operations uh, coming out of the villages and stuff like that and and so we tried to influence that the best we could uh, with you know RAND studies and showing them that hey if we just keep this for a couple more years uh, you know it's going to be solid and the chance for resurgence will be way low and I I mean look what we've done in terms of the dropping of casualties, you know, lowering of casualties, uh, record lows, um, record highs in security. Uh, The Taliban are pretty much slapping the table on defeat. Al-Qaeda is like, hey, we can't operate here anymore. And that had a lot to do with the top-down stuff going on, too, because you needed that, right? So, you know, the Tier 1 guys weren't involved in, in the village stability operations, Afghan local police. But what they were doing to take out the senior guys... Was obviously complementary, complementary, right? right? So this was good. This was a good balance, and right. it was soft was in a good place where we were all working together and we were doing a variety of different missions along our very broad mission continuum, uh, and it was way less expensive than sending over a division or a brigade to do it, right? Um, you know, did it keep soft busy? Yeah, it kept soft busy, but. Uh, you know I mean in a productive way and the guys saw it right I mean not everybody you know, even our guys weren't in love with the mission at first you know I mean you talk about it in your book mm-hmm. you know about having to explain to guys that it's going to have to be an Iraqi solution to this right and we're going to have you know and it was the same challenge as I had right no guys we're not going to be kicking in doors um, the Afghans are going to kick in doors probably but you're not going to kick in any doors and if you do well uh, that's an extreme, right? Uh, but you've got to work through with and by these guys. They're the ones that have to own it at the end of the day. And so we went through the same thought process. Mm-hmm. But the guys realized that this was still a combat mission, that this was not a manby-pamby kind of hand-wringing humanitarian thing. It was a combat mission. And <clears throat> uh, and so, you know, they got it. I mean, they 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 really they really made it work. Without them, no way. wouldn't have happened. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Uh, so you start hearing this and you know, we're getting concerned. And,
0: and the concern is about a drawdown coming? Drawdown coming.
1: Right. Changing from a combat operations to non-combat operations. Coming out of the villi- villages too early. Mm-hmm. Handing this program lock, stock, and barrel over to the Afghans at the senior level Too early uh, And um, You know we gave them the warnings We said hey likely The security situation will reverse Likely The There will be a resurgence um, And Al Qaeda will come back Right Well um, Nobody thought that ISIS would come back But by 2016 We had a complete reversal Because we did. They made the decision. They slapped the table. Mm -hmm. We came out of the villages. We went strictly top-down. We put all our emphasis on the Afghan National Army and police to fight and gain security. We didn't support the Afghan local police program anymore. It fell fell apart. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I think it could have been avoidable. I think a lot of other people who have done assessments on it thought it could have been avoidable. But nonetheless, um, you know, our guys on the ground, regardless of what mission you give them, still do it uh, with honor, integrity, and they get done what you want them to get done. But um, at the end of the day, um, uh, we saw ISIS come back. We saw al-Qaeda emerge. We saw... Uh, The Taliban come back in full force. The security situation was reversed, and we had an all-time high in casualties uh, in 2019. So here we are in 2021, um, and, you know, President Trump, I think, had the right idea. Let's figure out how we can come out of Afghanistan. Well, nobody gave him a plan, Right. When he asked for two years in new administration, just didn't have a plan to come out. So, um, you know, hey, the political situation, you know, overcomes everything, right? Uh, Going into a presidential election year, a big year for the Congress, you know. um,
0: And that starts driving decision-making.
1: Starts driving Mm decision-making. And really. um, Instead
0: of the guys on the ground.
1: Right, exactly. And so here we go. uh, And. You know, um, the president was responsible, the current president, who's got to make a decision, right? I mean, it, it is what it is. But he was also in charge of, when he was vice president, you know, coming out of Iraq in 2011 and going to zero. And, you know, he, he just used, I think, what he learned there uh, and the experience he had there and applied it to Afghanistan. And, boom, you know, we're out lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, And we – although I am an advocate of, you know, figuring out how to come out of there, I'm more of an advocate of coming out of there the right way. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to lose there, particularly – I mean, I'm signing a lot of letters today from 20 years of working with people there in Afghanistan, interpreters and workers, barbers, you know, guys – you know, gardeners, Mm -hmm. guys that really put their life on the line – to um to support us and to help us th- them and their families and now they're left there and and so I think I got 45 letters signed right now um, and I send everything I do to Congressman Crenshaw and Tom cotton because they're you know they're putting together some sort of process to expedite getting these guys out of there but <clears throat> you know um, it uh, yeah it's a Everything's political, right, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we just – we're, you know, we're at a point in time now where, um, you know, strategy and policy and security inside our country and outside our country is, is uh, you know, I mean, I think it's an issue. I think a lot of Americans see it as an issue, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and Yeah, well, especially when we see other, you know, nation states that are making moves, big moves and – Playing long, playing the long strategic game, and we're, we're looking to the next election. That's our long strategic game. Sometimes it yeah. Seems.
1: Right now, twenty twenty two is our long strategic game, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how are we going to change the House, and how are we going to change the Senate, and how are we going to get the majority there? Uh, not so much in how we're going to deal with China, and and how we're going to deal with a potential invasion of Taiwan, and how we're going to deal with Russia and their encroachment on the Crimea and Europe, and and their pipeline issues and, and Iran and, 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 you know, their proxy war and what they're going to do against Israel and, and North Korea is going to follow China everywhere it goes and now it's working more on its nuclear program than it ever has been and we got, you know, no visibility on that and, and those, are some ex- those are some existential threats that we really got to pay attention and to. The, and they're real. If and they're happening, real, real, and we got Africa right. Twenty-eight countries in Africa that are just getting eaten alive by China and Russia. They're getting eaten alive by terrorist organizations that are taking advantage of the ungoverned spaces, and that's dangerous for Europe. You know, the French and the British and the and the Dutch and the Germans and um, the Italians. The front line for the for the war against violent extremist organizations is in Africa for them. You know, it's Mali, it's Libya, it's Tunisia, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's Kenya, and it's uh, Somalia, and it's Nigeria, and it's Senegal, and Mauritania, and Morocco, you know. <laughs> uh, it's all these different places, right? And, um, you know, I mean, I spent four years in, in U.S. AFRICOM, and uh, two years, 26 months of that was commanding Special Operations Command in Africa, and we had 28 countries, over 2,000 special ops troops on the ground advising, assisting, training and conducting operations through, with and by our partners to get after Al-Shabaab right <laughs> Somal- ISIS Somalia right out in the east there, central Africa the Lord's Resistance Army and now ISIS is there in Nigeria with Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa and, and, uh, and Chad and Cameroon and Burkina Faso and Mauritania and Senegal and, and all of the uh, affiliates of Al Qaeda that are out there reaping havoc, right? The French have over 4,000 troops on the ground in, you know, from Mali to Nigeria because it's their war on, it's their front line, right? And you have a huge coalition of, you know, of European partners there. I mean, I dealt more with our European partners than Special Operations Command Europe did. <laughs> Because they're fighting in mm-hmm. Africa, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was always, you know, coordinating with Mark Schwartz. Hey, Mark, man, I'm, going to, I'm going to Denmark. I'm going here. I'm going there. You know, I, I, I went to France five times, right, to talk to the highest levels of their government about, you know, what was going on there. Um, and, you know, uh, so what was going on in, in Africa is, is, is something that America has taken its eye off of. and. 1.4 billion people by 2050, it'll be 2.4 billion people. And Incredible, it's Im- it's amount yes. Incredible amount of resources there. Incredible amount of resources. Huge. And what goes through South America into the United States, uh, you know, South America is not very far from the African West Coast, and you got all those traditional lines of illicit trafficking that go through Europe, Iranians have multiple have have been able to establish multiple places where they have infiltrated Africa all over Africa to move men, weapons, and resources at a drop of a hat if they need to. So, I mean, we got other problems out there right. that we you know we have to keep our eye on. And in Afghanistan, we shouldn't be tied to one country, uh, but we got tied to that country. There was a good way to go out, but. Moving to a regional perspective with everything going on in that region is a whole heck of a lot smarter. And, <clears throat> you know, we just need to start considering that. But we, I still think we have some responsibilities to Afghanistan that we kind of overlooked in our, in, in, in our, uh, in our
0: um, exit there, you know. You know, you, looking at the global perspective and the global issues, clearly um, that's, that's all stuff we have to think about. But I know that there's one more issue that you've dealt with personally and you've tried to help out our troops with it. And that's what's going on and what happens to our troops and what's happened to our troops. Well, I guess as long as we've been around, but we've definitely noticed it for sure since these wars kicked off, the, the war on terror kicked off. And that's uh, post-traumatic stress. And, and then the the traumatic brain injuries. Mm-hmm. What was your, how, how did you address that? How did you experience that? What was that like for you? And I know we've been talking for a while, but I wanted to cover this because, I mean, this is something that a lot of people are, are dealing with.
1: Yes, uh, well, I think it's the number one health issue that we have in the United States military today, and I believe it's the same when you look at our veterans, and it's leading to the, significant amount of suicides and, uh, in both, on active duty, in the Reserves, National Guard, uh, and, uh, and again in um, uh, our veteran community, right? Um, <clears throat> and I think it's all has to do with this mental injury uh, issue and physical injury and spiritual injury and it's that triad that I think is hugely important that we have to work on strengthening all the time uh, in the military, because you know as well as I do, if you're physically hurting, uh, you need that taken care of uh, and mental injuries, right? Uh, you need that taken care of. And we know by studying uh, all the way back to um, to Sparta, right, that uh, traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress was something that they looked at. They didn't call it that. Right, <laughs> but they knew that a conk on the head created problems. Right, and they and they manifested themselves in the inside their their uh, their their units, their military units, and they they realized that they had a an obligation. Right, in in ancient Sparta, there's only two people that get their name on a headstone: a mother who get, who dies in childbirth, and a warrior that dies on a battlefield. Everybody else is buried in Sparta with no name, no nothing, but birth of a child and the sacrifice on the battlefield the ultimate sacrifice on the battlefield are recognized in in that warrior culture so when we look back and we see everything that we've done and what we've called it throughout the years um, and and I was one that didn't have an appreciation for it either right Uh, I thought it was a sign of weakness right there's no way right I mean you know, you think about patent, and you think about, you know, the way our society has shaped this. And, and I thought it was a weakness as well. Until it happened to me. Until I saw it happen in others. Until I realized it was a problem. And you know who educated me on this? My wife. She's a nurse. She started studying it. She started seeing it. She started seeing how I changed every time I came back. And when you get more comfortable being away from your family and deployed in a combat zone than you do at home with your family, you got a problem. And that was me. And it was affecting my relationships with, you know, f- my family. It was affecting relationships uh, in the military. I was, I was always, you know, wired for sound and go high and right really quick and lose my temper and not want to listen to people. And it just negatively affected everything, right? And she started noticing around 2008, and she was talking to me about getting help. Well, oh, there was no getting going for help in 2008 in the military. I can tell you that right now. In 2010, you started seeing programs, and they were starting to deal with traumatic brain injury. But <clears throat> I'm telling you, uh, we have all these programs, but what I learned was our approach is wrong, right? Uh, our, pro- our approach is punitive. Well, we're going to take you off your team. Mm. we going to take you away from the people that you love, the people that you want to be with every single day and we're going to put you over here, and we're going to say, okay, you're not going to do your duty, you're not going to do your job, um, and, <clears throat> and oh, by the way, uh, we're going to take your clearance away or suspend it, whatever, and um, if you don't get better in a year, uh, we're going to process you out of the Army. I mean, that's DOD policy, right? And I thought that was insane. Well, by 2013, um, I had just been promoted to brigadier general. I just got to U.S. Africa, U.S. Africom. I just started my job as the operations officer there. And guess what? My wife came to me and she said, "We can't handle it anymore. I can't handle it. The kids can't handle it. Your dog can't handle it. You know, Klondike, our husky at the time." Um, she goes, "You got to do something. I got to draw a line here." She goes, uh, and I
0: said, "You're right." You're right. And she's talking about losing your temper, not being around. Socially isolating myself, staying at work till
1: ungodly hours, just avoiding, avoiding social events. You know, uh, the, my biggest fear was having to go to a social event, right? Uh, and uh, I would look for every single excuse under the sun. Yep, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, until I call her up and say, hey, something came up at work, I can stay away. right? Check. And I would go home right after the event was done. <laughs> so, and she's not dumb. She knows exactly what I was doing, right? And, um, <clears throat> but she knew it was delicate, right? And, and, you know, I wasn't a screamer at home. I would just not involve myself mm-hmm. in anything, right? Just come home and mind my own damn business, not get involved, and that was that. And, uh, you know, um, if something came up, I would exit stage right and avoid dealing with it, you know. Uh, And then I would look for every opportunity I could to go deploy somewhere, right. Well, when I went to U.S. AFRICOM, that ability to deploy went away. Because as the operations officer of U.S. the only place I was deployed to <laughs> was my office, right <laughs> That was it. Yeah. So <clears throat> in 2013, she got me to go. At, but I had heard about this nurse, Sarah McNary, who had uh, was up at launch and she was really innovative. And so I went up and I had a meeting with her, and I said, "Listen, you know, uh, I got to do this under the radar, right? I mean." This is not something that would be accepted by the chain of command if I'm going for a PTS help. So <clears throat> she understood, and she um, put me on a program. I went up, and it was easy for me to get away. Right, we had AFRICOM units up at Launchdool, uh, and you know, Ramstein near Launchdool, and I could I could always find a a way to get up there if I needed to go for an appointment or what have you. So it wasn't a big, wasn't a big stretch and it didn't put a lot of light on what mm-hmm. I was doing. But I went up there in three days got evaluated post-traumatic stress, TBI, sleep disorder, pain management issues, um, neurotoxicity, um, and uh, it was all positive, right? I mean all the Malaria medications and the vaccines and all these things that we've done all our career and all our life. It was my kidneys, my, you know, uh, other organs, uh, the way your brain thinks, and so on and so forth. Uh, all that positive, PTS positive. More importantly, I got put on therapy programs, right? And so I took advantage of this, and I did it religiously from 2013 through 2015. I managed to go through this, and then I looked at myself in the mirror. What do
0: the therapy programs consist of? So, is this like sitting down and talking with someone? Is this w- yeah? What so is they it?
1: give you a bunch of tests for PTS, right? And they figure out exactly what's you know uh, what's wrong with your um, you know with your brain and and you know with your your thinking and and how uh, social isolation is impacting you and you know. And they put you with a therapist, and they work on those those things. You you talk about it. You come up with strategies to overcome it. Um, you uh, you. My wife came with me. That was hugely important uh, because, you know, she's got. There's a quote above my doctor's um, on my doctor's um, office there in Longstool. Um because my wife was with me and he asked me a question and I told him my answer and she goes, that's a bunch of bullshit because she knows. Mm-hmm. Right? So he goes, oh yeah, what's the real deal? Right? And so I realized the utility in that because sometimes we're embarrassed by our actions, right? And we don't want to fully disclose them. Well, if you don't fully disclose, then people aren't going to really understand how to help you. And, and when I had to travel, and I had an appointment I did it by Skype mm-hmm. and so I the TBI had serious balance issues I, my eyes were out of focus and there's a machine that they test that on and a machine that they fix it on <laughs> so my eyes got back into balance and my balance got they put you on a balance machine and you know you feel like an idiot uh, and And I did all my balance uh, exercises. My balance got good. You know, there was, I'd go for a walk with my wife. We'd hold hands and I would, you know, (laughs) veer off to the right. And she's like, hey, you're killing me, right? And she'd push me back over and so on and so forth. And so they just have all these strategies to fix your. Now think about it. You got traumatic brain injury as a special operator. And your balance is off. And your eye focus is off. And you got to do a, uh, you know, high risk uh, CH-MH-47 uh, infiltration into a village and, and, then, and then you know fast rope onto a building and then use a ladder to cross from one building to the other and your balance sucks right? These are things we need to fix but we're not going to be able to fix them if we're not aware of them uh, and so I started thinking about what a freaking coward I am doing this under the radar and not leading the way and so on and so forth so I went back and I talked to my boss about it uh, as the operations officer in Africa. And I said, hey, this is what I've been doing. And I am a different man. My wife sees it. My kids see it. My dog sees it. Uh, I am different. I'm not perfect, but I'm a better version of myself. And he goes, yeah, I've noticed you've been showing up to our – to our social events on Fridays here in Africa. And I go, oh yeah. He goes, before you wouldn't come near him. And I go, no, no, I wouldn't come near him, no, no, no. And he goes, he goes, that's good. He goes, all right, he goes, I get it. And <clears throat> I said, I'm gonna open it up to guys in the, in the in the J3. And I did, and I got them all together, and I talked to them, and I laid it all out, and I told them what I was doing. And I said, I'm a freaking coward, but I tell you what I'll do right now is you won't t- get taken out of your job, you won't get taken, you won't lose your clearance. I will back you up 100%. I don't care if it is DOD policy. They, I don't care. It's not the right approach. So I got your back. We did it. And I'm telling you, a lot of guys that helped. I carried that over when I took command of Special Operations Command Africa on 24 April, and I got with them. Unbelievable. 26 months of data. What I thought were... Uh, indiscipline issues, with alcohol and drugs, with self-medication. Mm-hmm. Those guys trying to figure out how they're going to be able to alleviate their pain, deal with their issues, and still be able to do their mission at the best of their ability, right? And in S- in South Africa, we put even the deploying troops that came over, we put them through the program and it was huge. Mm-hmm. Navy SEALs, Marine Special Operators, SF, Air Force guys. We got testimonies from wives and marriages that were saved. We decentralized the, uh, the program. Like, I remember I was in Niger, which we were up in Arlette, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and I did my Skype, you know, um, Uh, meeting with my therapist, right? I mean, I still see a therapist, right? Uh, It's just something that I decided to continue. But I'm a very high-functioning person, and that was my point. These guys are still high-functioning, and they're even more high-functioning if we give them the treatment they need. It's just a mental injury. 52 people we we diagnosed with uh, PTS, 471 with... um, with uh, traumatic brain injury, four hundred and seventy-one, mm-hmm. and there's only one guy, and you wouldn't believe how many people with pain management issues, right? I mean, and sleep issues—we're the definition of a sleep, <laughs> you know, sleep problems. <laughs> yes, <right>? we are. <laughs> and and so we got them the machines or the mouth thing, whatever they wanted, uh, and it was unbelievable. You know, if you if you get less than five hours of sleep your brain operates like it's got 0.10 percent alcohol in it you know legal limit of uh driving under the influence so for i don't know 25 years or so i was shit-faced at work without <laughs> without taking a drop of alcohol you know and and think about your decision making and stuff like that and so the new york times came into the unit and said hey Uh, we're gonna do an article on Africa, and then she started talking to people and said, that's not the story. The story is how we're dealing with post-traumatic stress and TBI and getting resilience and readiness back in the unit. That's the story. You should ask them about that. Mm -hmm. So she asked me about it and I told her, and that became the story. That wasn't a popular story with the chain of command. Not a popular story at all. And I was told to stop talking about it. the more you talk about it, the more problems we have. And I said, "Well, I don't agree with that. I think the more we talk about it, the more we understand it, and the least problems we have. Uh, and we get guys into therapy, and we can do it without degrading the mission." I didn't. I had 96, 96 missions in Special Operations Command, and 846 associated tasks, and I had zero, zero detriment in mission, uh, and guys got better. I mean drug and alcohol abuse, you know, incidents went way down. I went to zero in misappro- uh, you know, uh, misbehavior in the, uh, in the workplace. Zero, right? They sent a team from DOD to investigate what we were doing, right? And I said, hey, it's just a matter of taking care of mental, physical injuries, and spiritual. Uh, you know, SOCOM had a great program that they brought in with, that integrated uh, families. And we had that, and we'd located it in our headquarters, and that was something that I had nothing to do with because uh, the rules are that nothing gets reported to the chain of command. And I'm okay with that, right? I don't need to know, right? Guys there with their families working out problems. Oh, it was really unbelievable uh, after 26 months of, you know, of this. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it was for me it was – a whole process of of leadership and learning and understanding uh, and then being able to say you're strong, not weak if you ask for help, right? And I had three suicides in my units. I'll never forget Sergeant First Class in Kenya, six-month rotation to Kenya, combat operations with the Kenyan Special Ops Rangers, Against, Al, against Al-Shabaab and ISIS-Somalia, just great work. Packed up all his gear, cleaned his quarters that he was staying in, put a note, day before he was redeployed, went out to the range, sat in a chair and shot himself in the head. It was more painful him for him to go home at that point in time in his life, in his decision-making process, then, um, so he took his life. I tell you what, man, I took a knee on that one. You know what I mean? I mean a big knee, right? And uh, so I said, we can't, we can't allow that to happen. You know, it's bad enough to lose somebody in your unit, combat, Suicide. And, of course, w- we missed all kinds of warning signals. Mm-hmm. Everybody missed warning signals. You know who knew? The family knew. But the family was afraid to talk because they were afraid that if they say anything, then it's going to hurt their, hu- their husband's career. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be better at making sure it doesn't hurt their career, Make sure they get the help because we can do it. We get a lot of white space on the calendar when guys come back. We can make it work. Mm -hmm. And taking these health assessments, is not going to work, right? You got to have, take these programs and you at the top, I'm telling you, Rich Puglisi, who was my senior enlisted advisor, Navy SEAL, (laughs) great guy, love Rich.
0: I know Rich. (laughs)
1: Rich and I had the same issues. And we would get in front of the unit and we would talk and we would share our personal experiences. And we had everyone's back. The only person that didn't that got taken off was the sergeant major of our SIF our, um, team, you know, our direct action teams, And that's because he took, after we talked to him, he took all 45 of his guys the next day over to launch tool, ran them through the program, and when he was getting his MRI to see if he had any traumatic brain injury, they found a tumor hmm. about the size of an eraser on his brain. He got Medevac to... Um, to Walter Reed, they took the tumor off and they said, Hey, you know, if, you, if this had gone another year, you would have been figuring out an end of life plan. Yes. Um, and they replaced his left hip that he had been, uh, you know, dealing with for years. Um, and he was a new man, <laughs> right? Um, and an advocate of this whole program. And, you know, after he left the team, he went off to our training um, and has been an advocate for this and, you know, promoting it ever since. And this is what you get. You get guys with a better understanding right. from the bottom up. But they got to have that top-down cover. And I'm afraid it's still not there. Mm-hmm. It needs to be there. we got to put it there. And, um, and you know, I went through, the you know, what everyone else goes through. Oh, I'm weak. Something wrong with me. Uh, I'm less of a man. Um, and that's none of that's true, right?
0: So that's, that was your last tour, was, was at SOC AFRICOM, right?
1: That was it. Um, you know, it was funny. I joined the Army 29 June 1981, and I gave up command and had my retirement ceremony on 29 June. 2017, <laughs> I didn't retire officially until 2 August, 2017, but you know, I uh, came home and went on terminal leave and started helping veterans, put together a business called Truth to Power, um, which, um, which I was doing really well with. Um, I'd have about four speaking events a month, which was good, just bringing in the money that I needed then I got hired to be an associate professor at New England College uh, and I just got laid off uh, and I was trying to find a job I got laid off in May trying to find a job so I ended up uh, applying to Hampton Police Department and I am now a at 59 years old a police recruit (laughs) in the New Hampshire Police Academy I'm the platoon leader and uh, my the youngest guy in the class is 19 years old. <laughs> and I'm like, holy crap, right? And so uh I'll graduate in November, uh, November 19th. Um, and uh it was funny because in 1980 I was in class number 4 cuz remember I yeah, told you about yeah. being a police officer? And I am now in class 281. <laughs> and so uh yeah, I'll start working uh working at Hampton Police Department which is the town right next to Stratham where I live now in New Hampshire. It's uh it's on the seacoast, mm-hmm. so it's right there on the beach and a majority of the the work there is patrolling the 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 Hampton Beach area, right? Which is which is going to be cool. And uh you know, it's going to be uh, uh high adventure, right?
0: <laughs> New Hampshire Baywatch. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. And uh you know, I mean, I've always looked at where I can contribute. Uh, And I gotta tell you, at 59 years old, when I, and it's quite a process too, uh, because I I applied and I got my test date of 3 May and I went in, took my test with 27 other uh, young guys, right? And that was the standardized test, right? So I hadn't taken a standardized (laughs) test in over 40 years, so I was nervous (laughs) about that, right? And I took the test and I passed, much to my dismay and surprise. And I got set up for my oral interview. And I had the lieutenant, the sergeant, and the patrolman. And they go, All right, we know who you are. Uh, we all voted for you, right, uh, in the last election. We, all, we know who you are. And we know what you've done for our country. Why in the <laughs> hell do you want to do this? And I said, Hey, just looking for a way to contribute. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's no more to it than that and he goes okay and the sergeant starts asking me questions and he gets to the patrolman he goes i don't have any experience to ask you any questions (laughs) and i said yeah you do you're a police officer so bring it on but nonetheless uh you know you do the polygraph and you do the physical fitness test and you do the you do the uh the psychological test, and it was like going through special ops again, right? <laughs> uh, you know, all those things that lead up to you getting in. you got to qualify physically, right. mentally. Um, you know, you got to pass the, uh, the, the full physical test. Uh, and I have two prosthetic hips and three prosthetic discs because of uh, combat injuries, and um, that was the thing they were worried about the most, right? And I said, listen, I've jumped out airplanes with these things. I can certainly handle <laughs> patrol with these things. <laughs> they go, okay, that's okay. I guess you can, right? And uh, and so um, my wife thought I was nuts.
0: So that might seem like nuts. And then what seems like even more nuts to me is you entering the political arena. Yes. What, what, that, what brought that about? I was asked.
1: I was asked by uh, – I got a lot of – emails, texts, and um, uh, letters, phone calls from people in all 10 counties in New Hampshire, all 50 states, to include across the military, asking me to run for office. And um, I thought, well, if people think I can help them, I don't have all the answers. Uh, Certainly uh, not a politician. Uh, and I think there are many people in the military would attest to the, my, my lack of political acumen Because <laughs> it's just not there uh, Too straightforward, blah, blah, blah But nonetheless, um, if you think I can help you, I'm going to try And so that's my why for running uh, and, <clears throat> and so, um, you know, I, I just want to help our country, our economy help us become more fiscally responsible and help us be able to improve the safety and security of Americans so that we can all live the American dream. That's all I want to do, right? The oath I took in the military is still valid. I still believe in and and the American dream and and the greatness of this country and 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 I have a tremendous amount of a, of exposure to um what other people in other places across the world think and feel about America and the promise of America. And um, I think that regardless of your political beliefs or spectrum that you fall on, you know, God, family, community, and country has got to appeal to everybody. And that's my platform. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm doing.
0: And that's what you're doing right now. So, what is it you're running for right now, just so everybody knows?
1: United States Senate. In New
0: Hampshire, in obviously, New Hampshire. where where you've lived for fifty nine out of fifty nine, or where you've been a resident of <laughs> yes, fifty nine out of fifty nine years.
1: That's right. Um, and I've been a Republican in that uh, state for forty two years. My eighteen years old uh,
0: first president I voted for was, um, was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> so, uh, what's anyway. the when's that election timeline? So.
1: The uh, primary in New Hampshire. So if I get another Republican that run is going to run against me, which there isn't one yet, um, <clears throat> uh, the primary election is in September of 2022, and the um, the general election. If I win the primary against uh, Senator Maggie Hassan, a Democrat, um, who's been our senator for one term now. Uh, will be for November, 2022. Um, I don't have a political machine behind me. Um, I gotta get my name recognition up. Um, Fundraising is huge. So I gotta start earlier than those that are already established politicians, right? Uh, And so I'm out now campaigning uh, we're raising money. We're getting our message out there. It's being very well received. I've in the last poll, you know, four months ago when they did a poll, I was at thirty percent. I'm now up at forty five percent, right? So uh, we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> you know?
0: So if people want to help out, where do they where do they find you? Where do they go to help you out?
1: So my website is www.donbaldick.com. com and you know, uh, you can go there and you can either, you know, if you, if you want to help the campaign out, uh, if you're in New Hampshire, uh, that's easy to do. Um, you just sign up. You know, everything is right there on the website. My positions are there on the website. So if you're interested in how I feel on the Second Amendment or whatever, uh, it's there. Um, and uh, um, if you want to donate, it's there. Um, You know, I start pretty low. Um, I ask folks to donate $20.22, 2022, to my campaign. And if I get a lot of people to do that, I get a lot of money. Um, And it's, you know, anything helps. $5, $10, $20.22, $2,200. $22, Twenty-two dollars. Yeah, that helps too, <laughs> uh, but everything helps. Uh, and um, <clears throat> and I'm just going to go there to serve. There's 1.3 million people in New Hampshire, uh, and I'm going there to serve every single one of them. Uh, not just the Republican Party, but you got to serve everybody once you get in that office, right? You got to declare an office, and you know, my my political beliefs line up as a Republican, but. That doesn't mean that I don't, I won't work for and work hard for everybody in New Hampshire, regardless of whether they're an independent, Democrat, or libertarian, right? Um, and I think that's what we've lost in this country with the political divisiveness. We can't come together on three very important things, our economy, fiscal responsibility, and the safety and security of Americans. We used to be able to do that, you know? I'm a big fan of JFK, you know? I mean, big fan of him, you know, and... Uh, he would not even be recognizable today, right? As a matter of fact, he'd be more of a Republican than a Democrat today. So we got to come together, and we need people that I think have had uh, the experiences in life that realize that we're stronger if we work together than we we are apart. And are we going to have our differences? Yes. But today, our differences are just too much too much around what's really important god family and community
0: Hmm. also you got social media too right do yeah we're
1: uh, yes sir we're we're on social media uh everything um i would be remiss though if i didn't didn't um didn't mention the fact that everybody that found out i was coming here to talk on your show was like out of their mind (laughs) and it was across the (laughs) political spectrum by the way which is which is uh which is really neat and no, no one more excited than my son Zachary, who serves in the <laughs> New Hampshire National Guard. Uh, he was speechless. I mean, it was like, "Go, Jocko!" Oh, yeah, he just couldn't speak, right? <laughs> and he goes, "Why didn't you tell me?" And I go, "I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I just,
0: you know." Uh, but um, well, we have. I, I worked with the with the uh, National Guard extensively. In my uh, deployment to Ramadi. They were there when we first showed up, and they were just complete warriors and professionals. And uh, it was an honor to serve with those guys. So I, nothing, nothing but love for the National Guard, that's <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: yeah, he's coming up on his six years, and he's going to uh, become a veteran. He's already made that decision. But nonetheless, I am proud that he served his country. And my youngest boy, Matt, is a senior at Purdue, and he just finished his, uh, his lieutenant training uh so
0: so they're upholding the tradition
1: he'll be a second lieutenant on active <laughs> duty uh look out another baltic's coming fellas so
0: <laughs> awesome well, that's probably probably a good place to stop echo you got anything
2: oh yeah real quick going back to the marijuana fields oh He's going holes. deep yeah, mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you mentioned booby traps yes like what kind of booby
0: traps are in on uh, the no the the the, the the marijuana growers back in the day Great. would put booby traps around their marijuana fields so people wouldn't sneak in and steal mm-hmm. their, their everything. Grow.
2: Like, like what kind of booby trap? So
1: you would get the booby trap where you came across it, and it would be just a it would it would kick off like um like a a ditch of uh, like napalm. Fire would come up. Also, oh, like violent bo- booby traps, bombs. <laughs> the old ones with um like you like the you know. Uh, you know, Vietnam era stuff where like you know punchy sticks and and they they would they were spring loaded kind of things and they yeah. would come and they would just hit you in the thigh or the leg or what have you, Dang. upper body those those yeah. kind of things yeah Dang, that's yeah suck. they were they were serious serious yeah.
2: stuff back in the day well because I'm quiet and, and this is back back in the day too when when it was illegal but. Uh, They'd have booby traps, but it would be they wouldn't be violent booby traps. They'd just be like <laughs> alarm type, like you mm-hmm. know, like I've, I heard one where they had just like cases and cases of uh, mouse traps. Mm-hmm. So like if you if you stepped on it or you nudged it, it would go <laughs> and it was like like you know like a bunch of birds taking off oh, or whatever. Yeah. But louder, it'd be something like that, like that kind of stuff. They but had it was those too. Violent stuff. early
1: early warning devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they have that, and but they also had the closer you got. <laughs> The worse off it was for you and and that's why the the um the the forest rangers were always you know they were very appreciative of us going in there because we'd take it very slow and mm-hmm. you know our guys were trained very mm-hmm. trained very well, and we had you know we had some technology to help us out as well so <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was there it was ugly and we're lucky that we didn't set any of them off that yes, we were sir. able to yes, either go around them or you know um, neutralize them yeah. different way with you know old-fashioned way with uh, with the um, the rope and the
0: oh grappling hook grappling yeah. Hooks. Yeah, <laughs> pull go. them out and
1: watch what happens yeah. Dang. <laughs> Wow that was a good show. <laughs> glad we weren't around that
0: Mm. right on yeah general any closing thoughts well
1: i think the only closing thought that i would have and since this is you know you focus on leadership a lot is um i'd just like to let everybody know that um throughout all this i realized that i was imperfect leader and that as long as i remembered really three things and that is to remain humble, thankful, and grateful, and that I never let my ego get in the way, and I was always self-aware of my weaknesses and worked on those and let my strengths be what they are. Um, It was better off for me and everybody else around me. And um, these type of shows and the things that you do and what this show does for anyone who listens to it, uh, is, is, uh, is hugely important um, for America because right now what we need more than anything else is effective leadership. It is, it is a huge, huge issue and, um, and something that I think my experience is teaching in college and being around my own kids and being around others is they're thriving for, for you know, leadership. In these examples that we have seen in the past, and and you represent that here with the show. And I just want to thank you for this opportunity. I'm I'm humbled and grateful for it. And and so thank you for what you do. And thanks for letting me tell my story.
0: Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us. Uh, more important, thank you for your leadership, your service to our great nation, your sacrifices overseas. It's been a long war for America. You were there for most of it. Mm. And that's saying a lot. And you are still continuing to fight for America. We appreciate it. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you very much. And with that, General Don Bulldog has left the building. Definitely uh, seen a lot. Yeah. Always looking to improve. I think that's something we can definitely take away. Yeah. Maybe we can all look to improve. Maybe that's a good idea. Echo, yeah. Charles. Yes, sir. Any suggestions on where we can start to improve ourselves? Yes. What do you got?
2: Well, he did mention how he's. He didn't say he was the oldest one, cadet in the police. Uh, I think
0: it's safe to assume he's the oldest one. I assume one that at too. 59. Yes. Fifty nine.
2: Yeah um but he did imply that he you know but the fact the, the point is he's out there staying capable mm. talking about jumping out of planes with hips a certain way to the extent where they're like oh yeah you pass just you can do you can still do this kind of stuff you were this capable
0: you're in meaning the hips passed muster
2: yeah, yeah exactly right they're good to go remember they they're like um oh you you know they're concerned about his hips oh, or whatever yeah. and he was exactly. like hey I jump out of planes with these hips and they're like well and yeah, then you can patrol that's Boom. right Point is, very capable. High levels of capability. 59, 29, 19 years old, whatever. We're maintaining it.
0: The That's clock the is
2: ticking. The
0: clock is ticking. I, I heard that today. Pay that,
2: attention today. To that one. Yeah. So we want to keep ourselves capable, mentally, physically, of course. Right Through this path of capable capability chasing. We're chasing capability, of course. Through this path, we're going to take some beatings. 100%. Take it from me. Yeah, you do some jujitsu. You take beating sometimes.
0: Sometimes that neck
2: gets sometimes,
0: squeezed on yes. And neck gonna get squeezed on that one.
2: So, so you, you know how, like I said, hey, I, after I rolled with you that one day, and I was like, man, I like, I feel like I got hit by a truck. And you're like, oh yeah, f- full body doms, right? Oh yeah, it's way more than full body doms. Psychological. So full, <laughs> got some emotional doms as emotional well. Emotional doms. On but yeah, man, and that's that's real. You know, these are, that's just one of the many examples of the beatings you're going to take on this path. No problem, though. No. Sometimes you, you need some supplementation to help you through those beatings. In fact, you get through these beatings, that's when the capability starts to emerge. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Additional levels of capability. Anyway, got some supplements for you. Going to help you, help us. So first supplement I want to talk about is a new era of energy drinks. Straight up. Like the,
0: the old. New category. Well, New category. The real category.
2: New paradigm. Paradigm shift. Oh. oh yeah. One, two, three. You owe me a
0: discipline go. go.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so no sugar. It's a healthy energy drink straight yep. up.
0: That actually tastes good. Yeah, I saw someone someone wrote, Hey, I thought Jocko didn't drink energy drinks. I heard him say he didn't drink them unless he really needed them. Well, why yeah. is that? That's true. Yeah. That's a fact. It's a fact before this came out. Because yeah, exactly. you weren't going to want to drink one of the other energy, you weren't yeah. gonna, you don't want to drink those unless you had to. Yeah, the like hey, era. I've got a 19 hour drive, yeah. I'm 14 hours into it, I'm fading, I need something to boost me up for the next three hours. Yeah. Okay, cool, overdose with caffeine, get your jitters on, but you get there. Yeah. So that's what I used to do for sure. Yeah. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh, I've got something that I can drink. It's actually healthy for me, yeah. and it gives me the benefits of energy. <laughs> Yep. Right. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. yeah, it's true. So, do 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 I drink traditional, old school, poisonous energy drinks? The answer is no. I don't. Yeah. I used to occasionally if I needed to. Now, don't and do never need to do that again, because we have an alternative that's functional. Yeah. And works. So there and, you go.
2: And tastes good too. Do you drink kombucha? No. Have you ever? Have you ever tasted it?
0: I've probably. It might have almost touched my lips, but like right. I can just smell stuff and I don't like it. Right, that's yeah.
2: one of them. Uh, oh, com- kombucha is no exception in that regard, but it tastes junk. It
0: tastes bad. I know people, including people that I'm related to, that are so down with kombucha. I
2: get I get, I get. Do more it.
0: females like kombucha than males? I,
2: I don't have those numbers. In my
0: family, that's what I'm going <laughs> off <with>. my family, <laughs> in females room, yes. are drinking kombucha. <clears throat> yeah. Kombucha? What is it? Yeah, kombucha, kombucha. They're yeah. drinking it. Females, yeah. males, not drinking it
2: my father-in-law straight up makes it. Straight up. It's like a process. It's a thing. And then I
0: assume he drinks it. Yes, sir, he does.
2: But in my experience, yeah, more females are into kombucha than males. But that's not the point. The point is, if you ever tasted it, you're like, cool, kombucha is so healthy. Yeah. You know, it's de- detox and uh, whatever they say about kombucha. I don't know. I don't know the Ain't deal. Ain't worth it. It's healthy. We'll just say, bro, try to taste it. You're like, all right, you know, I'll endure that taste for the health benefits. You see what I'm saying?
0: But there's no reason to do that. that
2: like, no, there's not. That's the <laughs> thing. So this one, especially the mango flavor. Oh, you drink that one, you're like, wait a second. Tastes good and healthy and gives me energy. No, no lose situation right there. Okay,
0: just so <clears throat> everybody knows that the... the the mango flavor, there's no difference other than the flavor. Yes. You can't put it over here on a pedestal of well, whatever.
2: It, it tastes the best, so, you know. In your opinion. Yes. Yeah, I think, and, you know, the consensus is still getting being formulated because new, which is another kind of novel thing, new, oh, new flavor. Yeah. So, you know, you want to look at that one.
0: I, I always go back to Old Faithful, Jocko Palmer. Yeah, I can't, I can't argue with that. Right? Yep, it's legitimate. Yes, sir. J.P. Donnell pointed out. That Jocko Palmer tastes good, whether it's like room temperature or yeah. whether it's cold. Yeah.
2: The orange you're, you're good or- to go. Orange is like that, too. Mm. For sure. So, yeah. Sure. Get your. Oh, yeah, it's called Jocko Go if you didn't know already, which, you know, most of us do know. But we I do want to kind of reiterate these things about it.
0: Yeah. And by the way, it's available in Wawa right now. And we're working on a bunch of other convenience stores. You'll be seeing it. But everyone that's been going out to Wawa and just clearing shelves. Thank you. Yeah, because that makes the other that you're actually helping everyone in the in the nation. Yeah. You're helping everyone oh, yeah. in the nation because other convenience stores look at Wawa and think, oh, how's it? Do- oh, they go. Oh, how's it doing there? Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're selling a lot of that stuff. So that means other convenience stores go. All right, we want it, too. And mm-hmm. they're saying that. So we appreciate East Coast troopers out there clearing shelves yeah. in Wawa.
2: Yeah, it does make sense right if you're a let's say a convenience store owner yeah right a guy who makes the decisions whatever and he's gonna be like wait a healthy energy drink he's gonna be thinking kombucha or something like this where it's like cool it's new might not taste that good whatever <laughs> but wawa's over here demonstrating that hey brother this thing tastes good too yeah. you know so they're like oh i get it now yeah. you know they're kind of connecting the dots a little bit that yeah. makes well, sense there's all this
0: data <laughs> that there, they data. collect you know, and they know. and it's been great so mm-hmm. again Sincere appreciation to everyone that's been rolling out to, to Wawa and just getting it. Yep. Appreciate it. That's awesome. And you're helping America because now the rest of other convenience stores are getting on board. And then other people will have access to this wonderful, nutritious, as, as Travis Mills said, nutritious and delicious. Nutritious and delicious. I oh, do. yeah.
2: Fully. <clears throat> also, other items that, can, that do help us on the path is we got some joint stuff, joint warfare Super krill oil, another good thing for your joints. Um, Definitely. And the thing is, it's a big deal, and this is, like we always say, this is one of those things where this really pays for itself in a way that's, like, invisible because you're not worried about your joints. Mm -hmm. You'll feel the difference when you don't have it, when your joints are aching.
0: Here's what's interesting. Uh, We have a massive amount of subscriptions to those two. So people, yes, send it to me every month yeah. because they want to not miss out on that goodness. Yep, yeah. and they don't so, wanna,
2: just worry, they don't wanna y- worry about that. And stuff. if
0: you wanna subscribe to it, you get sh- free shipping, by the way, which is cool. Yeah. We so, don't wanna yeah. have to pay for shipping. You can also not pay for shipping. If you go to a vitamin shop, you can get all this stuff at vitamin shop. They've also been supportive. <laughs> And everyone has been supportive, rolling in the vitamin shop, buying stuff. So, very cool. We appreciate it. We'll keep making mulk. We'll keep making things that taste good and are good for you. That's what we're doing. JockoFuel.com.
2: Also, OriginUSA.com. This is where you can get American-made denim shoes or boots, Some other, all the cool new stuff that Pete thinks up, working (laughs) pants. Got some jujitsu stuff on there as well. So if you're joining jujitsu, you don't have a gi yet, or maybe if you do have a gi, Origin, and they're always coming out with some
0: new gi's. Yeah. Yeah. I said that in kind of a, but let's face it, the gi's at at Origin, like I put a, I have the first, like one of the first Rift gi's. Mm -hmm. I have, I was wearing it yesterday. Where were you yesterday? Uh, I was at, uh, you know, somewhere okay while I was training on the mats of justice sure. I oh, was yeah. wearing the, f- the first a dish yeah. white rift key These things are freaking unbelievable is it's like a whole new thing era yeah a paradigm yeah. shift paradigm since you shift. said that earlier
2: <laughs> yeah yeah they're, yeah they're they're the best the the only downside is that you will Potentially be spoiled in you that way will throw away your other Geese yeah, or at least marginalize them. I had I put on one to see oh, yeah Does it still fit and you know feel the fit, and you feel it and you're like bro. I would never wear this I mean cool respect Oh, you K. put on one of the old ones the old ones. An yeah, old one? and it's, it, it just simply went out of the rotation Yeah,
0: and plus, you know, it has bad karma Why because it was made by a slave labor? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah, yeah. China
2: yeah yeah, what's cool too is and we can you can see this on the origin YouTube channel, it's like it's the opposite of slave labor. It's like it's one thing to be like, okay, you have slave labor, okay. They don't want to be there. They're kind of, in a way, like obligated or forced in one, some way to be there and they got to make this stuff, okay. That's terrible, obviously. But then you have like maybe the quote unquote standard where it's like, hey, that's the job. They're going to go and they're going to do it. But then you get Origin, you go there, bro. Every single one, you see them, all, oh, man, they down care. For the cause. They care about that stitch. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? They care about like the whole deal. Then they make that gi, then you get to wear it,
0: bro. Yeah. Uh, that's day. That's the Then you get positive karma. Yes. Good karma with that gi. All around. <laughs> All around. Good karma with those jeans. Oh, yeah. The working pants.
2: Supporting American economy as well. That's a big part of the whole gig. Amazing. Yeah. So win-win-wins across the board, originusa.com. Cool stuff on there. Very cool. Also, speaking of cool stuff, Jocko has a store. It's called... Jocko store (laughs) so yes discipline equals freedom shirts hats some uh, rash guards on there uh, hoodies on there shorts on there you want a shirt that says good with or without Jocko's face you got the option though anyway some good stuff on there check the if you look at that stuff you like something get something we do have a subscription situation on there as well called the shirt locker cool designs
0: depending on your opinion depending sure but we co- think they're cool designs. general
2: consensus. They're cool design. They're fun, you know, a little bit different. So we'll say creative. I don't know. I've heard the, the word creative thrown around. Okay, unless yeah, uh, okay. you can check those, that out as well. It's all at Jocko store
0: subscribe subscribe to this podcast wherever you subscribe to podcast. You can also subscribe to unraveling Jocko unraveling with Daryl Cooper. We've been making some of those lately We have the grounded podcast, which we haven't made lately. Does it need to be revived from the ashes?
2: Yeah, it's possible.
0: Uh, Warrior Kid Podcast is another one. I got a I got a letter from a yeah. little kid. Yeah. They had one question for Uncle Jake. Yeah, when's the next Warrior kid, kid Podcast coming out? Because yeah. I've only made oh, I think thirty seven of them or something like that.
2: Yeah,
0: <sighs> but they're there. If you've got a kid, Warrior Kid Podcast. We also have JockoUnderground.com. We have a that's a little um, little sovereign area of the interwebs that we built to make sure that we can remain free out here. And because look, these people doing are all kind of weird stuff with these platforms that we're on. So far everything's been cool, it's cool, Mm -hmm. we appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But contingency wise, you can't just, you can't build your house on someone else's land. Because they might come around and and kick you off, right? Mm -hmm. So we made our own land. It's called jockounderground.com. If you wanna help us, Support that land if you want to if you want maybe a little room on that land Maybe you want a little plot. Yeah. We can get you one <laughs> It costs eight dollars and 18 cents a month Hey if look and if you if you need to come onto the land the sovereign land of the Jocko underground and you can't afford it It's okay. We want you there as long as you're in the game. You can just email assistance at Jocko underground That's we appreciate it again for real if something goes sideways on these platforms. We're gonna be there and and as a as a appreciation, we do another little podcast. It's usually about an hour. Yeah. We talk about some other subjects, we answer Q&A, mm-hmm. questions that have been sent directly to the underground, it's true. then we can uh, tell you what's up. So that's that, we also have a YouTube channel. Yep. And a lot of people correctly identified on the latest release of the Mayhem movie sure. that Echo Charles made, sure. a lot of people recognized that there was a, some powerful assistant <laughs> directing going <guard> on in there. <laughs> 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 I'm serious. Off. I saw it in the comments. Strong ad people presence. People knew that the, the ad presence. I'm yeah. the assistant director. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and also, you know, kind of, I had a supporting role in that. In yeah. That one.
2: What would you say? Think so. Actually, you might have been the lead on that one. I don't know. I had zero lines. Yeah. Well, which is hey, they were powerful though. That's the thing. Your zero okay. lines. Your whole performance was
0: powerful. Because big shocker, Echo, Echo made a movie and he's <laughs> the star of it. That's kind of the feeling that most people got. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Red Tie, Main Tie, <laughs> yeah. just sent me like, it was a clip of us talking about it or yeah. whatever, uh, and um, how like you know the the time you're you're clicking on the can or whatever in that in that yep, video yep. or whatever. I guess me, I, I guess at the end of the day, I was giving you props for that uh-huh. or whatever. Yeah, and I feel like everyone, including Main Tie, is kind of just sort of recognizing you straight up. You're the AD, assistant director. Uh, see, so see? all right, I'm but, signed on. Cool. But I still Good. feel like I'm in Thank the you. shadow of the
0: star. Yes, the the person with all the lines. Yes. And the most camera time. Yes. Just, you are. You are? Yeah. you are. No, that's you, dude. In <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yes, our YouTube channel. We do have uh, uh, on top of. Jock the assistant director. We do have a video version of all this stuff.
0: If you want to see what General Don Bullduck looks like, you can come on here. Yeah, and you check out the YouTube y- channel.
2: YouTube is, you know, one of those things now. It's not just a video thing anymore. It's like some people, it's their preferred method to like watch mm. TV, listen to podcasts or whatever. So I dig it and we got you. That's why we got this
0: whole thing. It's I think full, I'm one of those episodes. people. Yeah. I'll, I mean, d- does anyone watch TV? Like actual TV? Like a show? Yeah, is that happening? Yeah, okay. Some DVR action. Okay,
2: I don't know if people still watch it live,
0: like live. No,
2: I don't think so. Like that might be very low numbers. Subjected
0: on that one. to commercials and stuff. No, so commercials are a kind of a non-starter for me at this juncture in yeah. my life.
2: Yeah, you know it's weird, and my kids kind of the same way. Is like I like I like commercial, not all of them, but I'll well, yes. fast forward through them. But if I see one that I'm like, oh wait, let me see that commercial. Like it's kind of
0: there's no commercial. That there's like a
2: because s- some commercials there's a little story within the commercial. It's kind of good. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I feel that way. Nonetheless,
2: right so yeah. Anyway, yeah. The point is, we have a YouTube channel. Boom.
0: Subscribe to it.
2: Subscribe to it if you uh, want. It's a good one. So yeah, there you go. Also, psychological warfare. <clears throat> if you don't know what that is, an album a Jocko album with Jocko tracks on there telling us how to get past our moments of weakness when we have them. And I have them from time to time. But you don't gotta worry about that kind of stuff because Jocko will tell you why you should get over them. 100% uh, success on that Mm
0: -hmm. one. 100%. If you want to hang something cool on your wall why not make it something from flipsidecanvas.com that my brother Dakota Meyer made owns. He is the I wanna make fun of How do we make fun of him? He's the creative artistic director of that hell thing. Yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. There you go, Dakota. Creative artistic director. I think that's the title he's always wanted. Yeah, I don't doubt it. It's a good title. That's sure. Dakota, one of my heroes. And if you wanna get some stuff to hang on your wall, flipsidecanvas.com. Got a bunch of books. I've written a bunch of books. The, the one that's coming out next is called Final Spin. We don't know if it's a novel, we don't know if it's a poem, we don't know if it's a manuscript, we don't know what it is, but it tells a story. A story with some lessons. I let my oldest daughter read mm. the book, Final Spin. Mm-hmm. And she got done reading it and she came out the kitchen and like I could see that she just got done reading it.
2: Mm.
0: And I go, "Oh, well, you know, what'd you think?" And she started Explaining to me what she liked and what she didn't like, Mm -hmm. and she started crying Mm -hmm. while she was explaining Mm -hmm. it.
2: And that's when I said to myself,
0: "Okay, looks (laughs) like I found it. It's like we got it. We got what we wanted."
2: Yeah, that's funny. That which is to
0: have some kind of an impact, right? That's what we want. Yeah, want that thing to leave a mark a little bit.
2: You ever think about that? Like, why do we ever cried during a movie? No. Come on, bro.
0: When Zero. you're, when you're young, you never cried during the uh, movie. Oh no, we're not, you, you didn't say when I was young. Ever? Yeah. No, 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 when no. you were when, young, when yeah. I was young whenever. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. What movie? Uh, I'm pretty sure ET. No shit.
2: And huh? hey, you know what All sucks
0: right? is I watched ET with my daughter, who's she was 11 when I watched it with her. This was just like this year. Yeah. Have you seen ET lately? No, not lately. Uh, Steven Spielberg. No offense, that movie did not stand the test of time. <laughs> hey, I went to the theater when I was a kid <laughs> and saw that movie and i was with a friend of mine and we were kind of you know little tough guys yeah. we were probably 10 yeah. something like that little really. tough guys you know really? and we were bawling <laughs> <laughs> and i watched this movie what part i, 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 I do remember the, the end of it or something yeah. i don't know he goes home i mean eventually right <laughs> that's like <laughs> sure. what it's supposed to be the I guess. so i watch it with my daughter and i'm yeah. sort of bracing for her and i'm thinking all oh, this going to yeah. be she she just It was bad, it didn't stand the test of time. Now look, Jaws, as you know, I mean Jaws, one of my favorite movies, that Steven Spielberg, good job, credit. That stands the test of time and then some. Now could we go back, maybe CGI some shark activity? (laughs) We probably could. I guess I don't really want him to. Do you want him to? No, No. you like it old school. So keep it the way it is, bro, but you're not gonna beat Quinn and Chief Brody, right? It's not Mm. happening. I mean, who can, who's going to do better, Quinn? Let's face it. So, Steven Spielberg, Jaws stood the test of time. Good to yeah. go, credit. Yeah. However, E. T. Bro, wait, why? Because the story, or just because the special well, the effects? Whole thing, the, man, whole gig? the whole thing, the whole thing, the whole thing. It was like an okay movie, but I don't like okay movies. Yeah, you know that doesn't do it for me. They got to blow you away. Yeah, They're I want to get. I want to get something. It takes an hour and a half to watch a movie, maybe two hours sometimes. Yeah. I'm not. And at this juncture in my life, if something's not good to go, I'm done. No time. We're not watching it. Yeah. I will leave a theater. (laughs) I will leave. I'm not watching this stupid. Or you know what I'll actually do? Sleep.
2: Dang, straight up. Get
0: some rest. Oh, yeah. If I'm with my wife or my kids Uh, and there's a bad movie, we once saw, okay, have you ever heard of a horror movie that's called It? Yeah, It.
2: Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: so the first one came out, my kids really like that horror movie. My wife doesn't even watch one millisecond of a horror movie.
2: The first the first of the new ones, because it is old school. That's The first of the new ones. Okay, no, the the, new ones. These new ones, the okay. dude with the clown face and the whatever. Yeah, that's all, with Pennywise.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's always the, the story. Okay, sure. so I watched the, the one of them. Okay. And it was okay, but then my kids were all amped. Yeah. And so we actually went to the theater to go see it, the second version or whatever, yeah, yeah, the new chapter one, two or chapter whatever. two, <laughs> Los Dos, whatever. <laughs> we roll in there. It is so bad. I just was like, I I, I watched maybe seven to 12 minutes of it. Maybe, yeah. m- maybe. And I was out, sleeping. Caught up on some yep, sleep. Caught up on some sleep. They woke me up. I saw the last, <laughs> the last seven minutes of it. Yeah. It was so bad. And we all walked out of there. My kids thought it was bad, too.
2: Oh, for real thing. Yeah. Okay, well, that makes sense. You ever okay? This is, okay, now we're kind of deviating, but I, I don't care. You talking about it; it's cool. I've never seen the new ones. Mm-hmm. I saw the old ones; like they're super long too, and cool. I get what they're doing, and they're good. But yeah. it, the new, not chapter two, like the the first one of the new ones. Mm-hmm. So the thing I didn't see any of them, but they they have a trailer for that. Mm-hmm. Oh man, it's a really good trailer. They have a few of them, yeah. but it's the one where it's like, hey, um. F- there's Georgie and then the older brother. Mm. I forget the older brother's no, name. No, I was sleeping. And he's <laughs> and he's like, Hey, you'll float too like, hey, if you come down here or everything floats down here is yeah. what the ghost kid says, right? Mm-hmm. Everything floats down there. I think that's what the clown said first, I guess. Anyway, so he's like, if you come down here, you'll float too. And then like this beat, this horror kind of beat and, like starts speaking up and he goes, You'll float too. You'll float too It's really really well done trailer mm. on that
0: one. Yeah. Well, it must have been better than the movie.
2: I think so. And remember, a long time ago when we were talking, you're like, "Oh, why did you start video or whatever?" Mm-hmm. And the whole phenomenon that some some movies, actually a lot of movies. I mean, I could name a lot of movies that the trailer is, is better. better than oh, the movie. Yeah, like sure. watching the trailer provides a better like experience than watching the movie.
0: Yeah, that's totally true. So
2: that phenomenon is kind of what made me like want to do videos or
0: whatever. Yeah, it. That's T- one of them. You have to say the T distinctly for right, it. it. Yes. So. Final spin, we don't really know what it is, but it will withdraw some emotions, some lessons learned, some thought-provoking material.
2: Yeah.
0: Final spin. Cool. You can pre-order it now. That way you can get the first edition. It's gonna be kinda rad to have the first edition of that. Mm. I think it's gonna be extra cool. So check that out, Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. The answer to all your questions is actually in that book. Mm. Leadership questions, the answers are there. The code, the evaluation, the protocols, discipline equals freedom, field manual, Way of the Warrior Kid, one, two, three, and four, Mikey and the Dragons, About Face by Hackworth, which I wrote the forward to, Extreme Ownership, and the Dichotomy of Leadership. I got Echelon Front, which is a leadership consultancy, and what we do is solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details. This is where you can find details for our live events. We have the muster, we have field training exercises, we have EF Battlefield. The next muster is in Las Vegas. October 28th and 29th, the next FTX is in September September 20th and 21st, and it's actually sold out. So, yeah, we sell things out. If you want to come, then go to echelonfront.com and click on events, and you can find all this stuff. We also have online training, the Extreme Ownership Academy. Leadership is a skill that you need to practice. It's a perishable skill. You don't. You don't take one jujitsu class. Now you can kick people's asses. Yeah. You don't take one leadership book, read it, and now you're good to go. No, you actually have to train. That's why we made Extreme Ownership Academy online leadership courses. It's a leadership gym for you to go through. We have live sessions. I'm on out there all the time answering questions. Go to extremeownership.com for that. Also, if you want to help service members active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. Go to AmericasMightyWarriors.org if you want to donate or you want to get involved. And if you want more of my anticlimactic anecdotes or you need more of Echo's Yattering Yarns, <laughs> you can find us on the interwebs. On Twitter, on the gram, and on that Facebook. Echo's at Equa Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And again, General Don Bolduck can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jen, Gen, G E N, Don, D O N, Bullduck, B O L D U C. So if you want to check out what he's up to or you want to support his campaign, you can also go to DonBolduck.com. D D-O-N-B-O-L-D-U-C. O N B O L D uc.com and thanks once again to general bulldog for joining us today and for being out there from the beginning holding the line to protect our way of life and the same goes to the rest of our service men and women out there right now also holding the line to protect our way of life and the same goes to the police law enforcement firefighters paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all first responders, thank you for holding the line here at home to keep us safe. And everyone else out there, on September 10th, 2001, we were at peace. the next day, September 11th, 2001, we were at war. In one day, everything changed. And that's the way life can be too things change things happen people get sick people get hurt we lose our jobs we lose our loved ones anything and everything can change in one day and when it does don't get caught back on your heels instead go forward go on the attack and continue to fight until there's peace again and until next time, Zecco and Jocko, out.